peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Disturbing. Viewer discretion is advised. Liberty, New York, August 1st, 1967. I first want to clearly establish the events that I will be recording in this report are my absolute clear and vivid recollections with no uncertainty whatsoever. I am as sure of the details of the experience as if they occurred yesterday. I want this to be understood and declared before I begin. Whether you accept them as the valid truth will be at your own discretion. An advocate and I have been working on this report for more than a year. Due to time constraints from conflicting work schedules, at best we can collaborate three hours a week. In the course of a year, this equates to three standard work weeks. As detailed and thorough as I would like to be, this report would never get filed in our lifetime. The abduction section is detailed and complete. As for my theories, postulates, supposition, conjecture, and hypotheticals, I would have liked to include far more Bible scriptural support and collaborating research data which would authenticate the Global New World Order initiative and also include decades of research, documentation, and witness accounts that clearly establish an off-world presence of multiple extraterrestrial races and the direct relationship between the three, Bible, New World Order, and UFO. The beginning. I awoke on the evening of the event floating and stationary six feet from the ceiling above my bed. My first impulse was to reach up and touch the ceiling. One of my strongest ambitions as a child was jumping on the bed as if it were a trampoline. I always tried to touch the ceiling. I was so excited to be that close to the ceiling so I could attain my childhood ambition. I attempted to touch the ceiling for a period of five or ten minutes and could not comprehend why my body would not respond to my intention. During this time I realized that I was completely immobilized. I could look with my eyes but not move my head. I was staring down the length of my body with the additional desire to kick with my legs once I realized I could not move. I could not understand why only my eyes could move and not my body. I found this puzzling, most unusual, and frustrating. This state of mind seemed to last for approximately 15 or 20 minutes. Upon looking down the length of my body I noticed, which I found particularly bizarre, my blanket was not draped over my body but was still in the layout of four distinct corners, as if it were still on top of the mattress, I found fascinating. I was experiencing a feeling of euphoria and excitement thinking I was the one making this happen. My immediate association with floating came from the variety of cartoons I had been familiar with such as The Road Runner and The Coyote and Bugs Bunny as well as the variety of cartoons airing every Saturday morning that any child from the 1960s would be familiar with. In the innocent mind of a child, the potential of control floating could easily be possible. During this 15 or 20 minute period, I would repeatedly try to touch the ceiling and move my legs, and not once did this occur. I remember the colors of the blanket being dark blue, light blue, and white, with a plaid pattern and red piping. I thought it odd that not once did the blanket ever move or drape from the original time I became conscious throughout the entire time frame. Then I and the blanket started to move in unison, both the blanket not moving and myself still in a state of immobilization. Immediately I positively sensed that this was being done and controlled by evil, threatening, 
menacing people and that they were doing this from outside the house and were located respectively, I immediately started screaming, felt complete terror, and was overwhelmed, in a threatened state of mind. For clarity, I want to state that I went from euphoria to complete terror in the same second and was then very aware that I had not been making this happen. What I thought at the time to be people who were doing this to me were clearly in control and I was terrified. I began uncontrollably screaming and experienced the deepest sense of fear I had ever known. This event occurred in the summer of 1967. I was six years of age and was on vacation with whom I will refer to as Guardian A and Guardian B, not my parents. Guardian A and Guardian B had been sleeping in the adjoining bedroom. Guardian A was awakened by my screaming. I could hear Guardian A saying to Guardian B, Something is wrong. Andrew is screaming. You have to go see what's happening. Guardian B said to Guardian A, Everything is okay. Guardian A and Guardian B repeatedly said to each other, Something is wrong, you have to go see what's happening. No, everything is okay. Guardian B by nature is an extremely strong-willed and determined individual with a strong sense of protection and provision. Guardian B is intensely confrontational by nature and would not be intimidated by a threatening situation and would directly challenge any potential threat. It was completely against Guardian B's nature to be complacent or passive. The fact that Guardian B kept repeating that everything was okay in a voice tone that was submissive with no sense of responding at all to my obvious traumatic scream, I had not understood. I was most literally waiting for Guardian B to come to my rescue. I was counting on this desperately. Guardian B kept repeating, everything is okay. I could not believe Guardian B was not responding to my traumatized screaming. I then thought that Guardian A who had awakened first and then woke Guardian B would come into my room to see what was going on. This would be a natural reaction of any guardian responding to a child screaming, which they were responsible for. I could not understand this at the time. It is clear to me now that in some way their minds, thoughts, and emotions were somehow being controlled and manipulated so as not to interfere with what had clearly been an abduction attempt. At this point I felt the intensity of what must have been the gravitational containment field that I and the blanket were in increase dramatically in power. I remember starting to drop towards the mattress and while drifting down, losing consciousness. My next recollection was that I was lying face down on the mattress with a sensation of being beyond completely exhausted. As I awoke in this state of mind, I sensed that someone was in the house and about to walk into my room. The door was open, I was staring into the doorway with the undeniable expectation and assurance that someone was going to walk into the room. In retrospect, when I had awoken this second time, I had no sense of fear or recollection of the trauma that I had just endured. As I was staring into the doorway I saw four long slender mint green fingers wrap around the door frame and come to rest on the surface of the wall of the bedroom. I had thought it strange that the fingers were approximately a foot long, obviously longer than any human hand. I visually measured this by the fact that only the fingers appeared around the frame of the door, never the palm. They would have to be a foot long to wrap around the width of the door frame and come to rest, extending an additional four to six inches onto the surface of the bedroom wall. Then the head of the creature peeked around the door frame. I noticed by association it was approximately the same height as the doorknob. The creature peered in very slowly as if it did not want to startle or frighten me. I got the sense it was being particularly tentative in its own movement, both in the slowness of how the creature wrapped its fingers around the door frame and how it slowly looked into the bedroom. It stopped with its entire head exposed, a slender short neck, and right shoulder. The color of the being was a pastel, light mint green. I looked at the creature and felt a sense of happiness and friendliness. I tried to wave hello but was so tired that my arm felt too heavy to move. All I could do was barely raise my hand and two or three fingers to express what I would have liked to have been a wave of hello or greeting. I smiled, laughed, and felt very drawn to him. The physical effort to raise just my fingers was so draining that I actually fell back to sleep immediately. 
I awoke for the third time this evening, still in my bed, noticing immediately a brilliant white light of indescribable intensity. It was shining through the front door and window, lighting up the living room and my bedroom, which was adjoined to the living room. When I awoke this time, I felt particularly energized, full of enthusiasm, and extremely curious as to what was the source of this intense brightness. I remember the experience of meeting the green creature, but not the trauma which was associated with my first awakening. I still had the sense that it was night and this light was so overwhelming that it could not be a flashlight or some other type of spotlight, headlights from a car, or any other light source I have ever encountered. I got up and walked into the living room staring at the wall which was at the front of the house. At that point I realized the entire front yard, from looking through the windows and the glass door, was bathed in a brilliant whiteness. As an illustration, it was the same as when you look into a thick white fog and cannot see anything, in this case, a brilliant white light substituted for the fog. As I entered the living room I became acutely aware that multiple people were outside behind the white light. At this point, I had a sense, although not sure, that non-human beings were generating this light and that they were aware of me and that they knew I was aware of them. At this moment I felt an intense curiosity to go out into the front yard. At the same time, I felt a strong sense of caution, not fear, but a reason to be cautious. I walked closer to the window and to the door which was filled with this brilliant light. Even though it was clearly established in my mind that they knew I was inside and that I was also aware of them, I did not want to be seen at the window or at the glass part of the entry door. Staying behind the wall, I did not directly look out of the window or the door. The brilliance of this light was so overwhelming that the window and the door seemed as though they were just a picture of a blank white field. I stood in the living room for what seemed to be up to two hours, repeatedly saying to myself, this is happening, this is real, this is not a dream. You are awake and I put this in my mind and convinced myself repeatedly this is happening. At this moment I realized that when I would tell anyone about this, they would not believe me. In the 1960s, children's thoughts, observations, and feelings were most often not taken seriously and hurtfully dismissed. I was not going to allow that to happen to this. They would say you were dreaming or you were imagining this. I wanted absolute conviction to myself that this was all a factual occurrence. I was awake and aware of what was going on and wanted to solidify this in my mind so as to never doubt myself of the reality of what I was going through. I went over this over and over and over again repeatedly, till it was indelible in my mind and I was self-assured of the certainty of what was occurring. My sense of curiosity and caution were competing with each other. I remember feeling that if I do not go outside and see what this is, I would regret it literally for the rest of my life, and be disappointed and bitter with myself for not going outside. Guardian A and Guardian B's bedroom door was in direct line with the front door of the house. The kitchen was between the living room and their bedroom. The door to their bedroom was open and both were sleeping. I had looked into their room and for some unknown reason I felt no desire to wake them. I felt the need to and wanted to do this on my own. I don't know how to describe the immediate sense of the understanding that whatever was going to occur was between myself and them. Not knowing what to expect walking into the front yard, I went into the kitchen and moved the table and chairs out of the way. I had to clear a path to run from the front door or from the yard straight through the front door, living room, and kitchen, and jump directly into the bed of Guardian A and Guardian B. I must have spent at least half an hour staring at this pathway and walking it back and forth from the bedroom door to the front door. I did so to assure and reassure myself that if anything went wrong in the yard, nothing would block my escape route directly into their bed. At this point, I felt confident that if anything occurred in the front yard I would run straight through the house and jump into their bed. As I walked towards the front door I recall the slats on the door were open and the brilliance of the white light was shining through in beams. Still feeling a strong sense of caution combined with intense curiosity I approached the door, turned the handle, and opened it. When I opened the door the light was so bright you could not see anything in the front yard. 
Once I opened the door, the light receded to the point where I could see a perimeter of approximately 60 feet, which included grass, trees, a walking path, and so on. I looked up at the source of the encompassing white light and could see nothing but the brightness and no part of the sky whatsoever. It was so bright it hurt my eyes to look at it directly, much like staring at the sun. Through the brilliance of the light, I did not at any time see the actual craft. I recall cautiously taking one step at a time continuously looking back at the front door and looking straight through the door into the bedroom to make sure that the path had still been clear. When I was approximately 20 feet past the door, a cylinder beam of light was projected through the ceiling of white light 30 feet ahead of me. The cylindrical beam was about 4 feet in diameter. When the beam reached the ground, I immediately felt drawn to it with a desire to enter into this beam, and I did so. As I walked into this beam, I felt my back and shoulders arch backward. Immediately, I started floating upwards and lost consciousness approximately three to four feet off the ground. At twenty feet I regained consciousness and was next to one of the pine trees in the front yard, reached out to grab a branch, and as I did so I felt the intensity of the beam increase which caused me to lose consciousness again. My next recollection was standing in front of a circular window in complete darkness. For an unknown reason, I felt as though I was standing in a spacious auditorium. The diameter of the window started two feet off the floor and went to approximately ten feet. The earth took up the entire window with the exception of a six-inch border of black space. We seemed to be in a geosynchronous orbit. I came to this conclusion because there was no sense of motion that would have been recognizable by a change of view. This could compare to the view from inside of a moving vehicle looking out at a stationary object. I recall the stunning beauty of the earth from orbit. This completely captivated me. The earth acts as a source of light lit the room I was in with a soft glow of light that penetrated no more than six feet. I was initially standing three feet from the window and walked right up to the window so I could be as close to the earth as possible. I associated this immediately with the Star Trek series. As a child this was my favorite show. Many times on Star Trek you would see the Enterprise go into orbit around planets. Captain Kirk would say, on screen and you would see the planet from the perspective of an orbiting spacecraft. This seemed to be a natural association. I felt very excited because as a child I always fantasized about traveling through space like the crew of the Enterprise, and now I was doing it. The Earth was just incredibly beautiful and I was staring at it in admiration. I would say ten minutes went by and my focus was fixed on the planet. The next thing that occurred was hearing a voice not audible through my ears, but inside my mind. This voice was very complimentary towards me, as though communicating with someone else, commenting that I have a very brave boy here. I heard this re-emphasized several times. I got the sensation that the source of the voice in my head was behind me, to the left about ten feet and about three feet high. I turned and looked but could see nothing due to the total darkness of the room. As previously established, the only light source was the sunlight reflecting off the earth, penetrating maybe six feet into the room which formed a semicircular perimeter, past this absolute darkness. A green being walked into the field of light from my left. I sensed that this was the same one that looked into my bedroom. I could see him. I sensed that they were the same being. I can't tell you how, but I was positive this was the same being that peered at me in the bedroom. Again this being said, hearing in my mind, We have a very brave young boy here. I sensed that the creature was not speaking to me, but speaking to somebody else. Next, I heard a response from a deeper, gruffer voice that immediately seemed threatening and very skeptical in a condescending way, saying, We'll see you in about three seconds. This time, the source of the voice was to my right and seemed to be coming from approximately eight feet high. The feeling my mind established was that the voice was in my mind and not being audibly heard. However, I felt certain that this being was tall, without being able to see this creature. Shortly after I heard this response, a tall gray creature, about eight feet high, walked into the window frame and was illuminated. I could see him. 
I sensed the being doubted what the green creature was saying about me, being brave and looking down at me with an intimidating and condescending expression, and I could sense his lack of belief in what the green was saying. Then right on cue, three seconds later, this craft flew so far from the Earth, so fast, there is no way for me to describe this speed. The Earth was literally out of sight in less than two seconds. My first response was to instinctively reach out towards it and try to grab it to hold on to everything that I knew. I did not do this as I was trying to be brave and courageous to support the Green's viewpoint of me, and I felt now I was representing the human race and I wanted to be brave and courageous. I felt instantaneous emotional devastation. Everything that I knew was now gone. Family, friends, pets, places, experiences, all of my stuff, and more, everything was gone. The next feeling that came into my heart and mind was that the Earth was incredibly insignificant, and nothing that happens on this planet truly matters when compared to the vastness of the universe and the distance we had already traveled. In some respects, I still feel this way today. The obvious, incredible, acceleration did not affect me at all, as I did not feel a sense of speed, motion, or anything. I was not concerned with that at the time, nor was I thinking about it at the moment. However, reflecting on this, how could this be, when you experience inertia in a car during acceleration and braking at miles per hour as compared to millions of miles per second? I feel that in order for this to be possible there must be a gravitational containment field projected inside the craft. At that moment, the tall gray turned and looked down at me, and again in my head, I heard him conveying to myself in the green. He is brave and looked down at me and I detected a look of actual happiness and approval on his face. Describing the gray, it was identical to the gray depicted in the movie Fire in the Sky. Within seconds this craft had reached Jupiter. I would say the total elapsed time was 15 seconds, from Earth's orbit to the planet Jupiter. The ship slowed and curved around Jupiter and I heard what I would describe as a low humming electronic power drain with my ears from the energy source of the craft. Jupiter took up the entire window. We seemed to be fighting against the pull of Jupiter's gravity which caused a strain on the power source of the craft. This lasted three to five seconds and we were at speed again. Seconds later, the same experience occurred with the planet Saturn. This lasted two to three seconds, then back to speed. This occurred for the third and last time for one second at either Neptune or Uranus. Then we were in deep space outside of the solar system. The entire elapsed time from the stationary orbit of the Earth to out of the solar system was less than 30 seconds. Now we were in deep space and I saw white light streaking by the window and was trying to figure out what they could possibly be. It then occurred to me, and I said to myself out loud, Oh my God, those are stars, which would indicate just incredible speed. Amazingly, I still had absolutely no sensation of motion or speed whatsoever, which leads me again to arrive at the conclusion that there must be some kind of stasis gravitational field being projected inside the craft. This experience I could now describe as identical to the Star Wars movie when Han Solo accelerated to jump to light speed. This craft was traveling far faster than light speed which is indicated by the fact that we left Earth's orbit and were out of the solar system in 30 seconds. To my knowledge, it takes 7 minutes for sunlight to reach the Earth and we traveled from Earth to out of the solar system, which is a far greater distance, in 30 seconds or less. Next, I remember being led to what I would describe as a waiting room. This room seemed to be an 80-foot circle. After being led there by the green and the gray, feeling their overwhelming sense of approval of me, I left there alone and the door to the room closed. I felt as though I was being observed. I remember there being a sneaker of a small foot, a doll, a baby rattle, and a variety of other clothing items and toys belonging to small children scattered about on the floor. This seemed strange to me that they would leave these items in this unkept way. I was conscious of this as my mother was always after us to keep our rooms clean and neat, and to put things back in their proper place when we were done using them. I felt as though I was in this room for about two hours. I walked around picking up and looking at the items that were around me. 
I remember that I kept looking at the walls and that they were made up of what I would describe as cinder blocks in nature by design, with the blocks being three feet high and four feet wide, rectangular in shape. They looked like semi-melted ice cubes with rounded corners. It seemed as though the blocks were behind about four inches of what I would describe as glass. The blocks were light gray as well as the floor, the ceiling, and the walls. The room was circular by design with bench-like seating attached to the wall which extended around the entire circumference. I was obsessed with trying to understand what the translucent film-like substance in front of these gray blocks was. I walked over to the wall and tried to touch it and my hand made contact with a gelatin-like substance that was solid yet soft enough for it to come off, all over my hand with a slime-like consistency. I remember immediately being repulsed by this slime on my hand and wanted to wipe it off immediately onto a towel or piece of cloth. Looking around the room, I didn't see anything big enough, nor did I want to wipe it off on my clothes. I just shook my hand to try to get as much of it off as possible, and waited for the green and gray to come back to ask them if they had anything I could wipe it off with. When the door finally opened, I was grateful, for at this point I recall being somewhat bored from waiting and was glad that the door was finally open. I remember being led down the hallway by the green and again having no sense of fear or feeling threatened on any level. The hallway we were walking down was approximately 10 feet high and 10 feet wide, and was full of multiple hoses, piping, and wires suspended along the ceiling and down the side of the walls. Again there were all sorts of loose items, human in origin, articles of clothing, and toys scattered about all over the floors in the waiting area only considerably more. Again I found this to be strange that they would leave these items discarded all over the floor. There were so many items in the hallway that you had to pay attention and look down at the floor so as to not trip on them or step on them. I kept thinking to myself, why don't they clean up? I was viewing them as adults, as I was a child couldn't understand why they would allow all of this clutter. I still don't understand this. The hallway was very dimly lit and was approximately a hundred feet in length. This also had a light gray ceiling, walls, and floor which led to what I would describe as an examination area, which I could see in the distance. This was very brightly lit. Upon walking into the examination area, and I say area because there were no visible walls or ceiling, the area was lit up with spotlights and outside of the perimeter of the lights, you could see only darkness. The original green accompanied me down the hallway into this area from the waiting room where we were joined by the original tall gray and a number of examination technicians that were shorter than the tall gray but taller by about 18 inches than the small green. They were light gray in skin color with almond-shaped eyes. I am not sure but I think, if I recall correctly, they were wearing white, gown-like cloaks over their bodies with high collars and hoods. I was led to a table and laid face up on the table. The green was to my left with a gray on each side of him, two at the bottom of the table, two to three to my right, and two above my head. The tall gray was about 15 feet to the bottom left of the table, and was observing the whole procedure. About eight to ten feet above me was a light source that was illuminating me in the immediate examining area. There were a variety of implements and tools which kept coming up and down directly over me through this light source, which the number of technicians would grab, use, and release. The implements would retract back up through the light out of sight. The implements would ascend and descend through the light rapidly. They were using each tool for no more than 5 to 10 seconds, touching them on various parts of my body, face, and head. I could not describe to you what the purpose or functions of each of the instruments were. I had a strong sense that the small green was particularly proud of how I was contending with the examination process. I could hear the creature inside my head communicating with the tall gray. I had a clear understanding that the creature was very satisfied with the small green who apparently was the creature that had selected me for whatever purpose they had for taking me. I felt proud of myself as well for having the approval of these two beings. All three of us seemed to have this psychic, congenial, shared appreciation and respect for each other collectively. 
I wanted to contribute on my part as much as I could to the examination process and felt that I was accomplishing this. My mother was a nurse and we were always going to doctors. I remember always having a good rapport with the pediatrician in particular. To me, this was just another examination, similar to trying to please my mom and the doctor when we went for regular visits as children. I associated no trauma through the examination procedure and was actually enjoying that. Everything was going from my perception better than expected and I would like to emphasize that the green and the gray were somehow projecting in my mind a strong sense of approval towards me. One procedure that stood out was when they put a metallic ring around my right eye and started to drip a milky white semi-translucent gelatin-like substance over my eye. I wanted to keep my eye open to see what was going on but it became difficult as the substance started to build up. No sense of pain, but the irritation that I could not see through the substance and eventually closed my eye and kept it shut as it continued to fill. During this procedure a probe was inserted into my rectum which felt cold. I immediately related this to a thermometer which my mother would use to take our temperature many times when we were sick. So I did not think this was unusual at all. I was experiencing no sense of tension or stress or fear during the examination and was constantly being reassured and approved by the small green and tall gray from whom I was sensing a feeling of strong approval relating to how I was participating and contributing to the examination process. As I mentioned before, instruments were consistently descending and ascending, making a buzzing motorized noise while doing so. All instruments were connected to metallic cords above the examination table through the white light that was illuminating the examination area. All was well leading up to the point where they inserted a tube into my nose which created an intense feeling of pressure in my nostril leading into my sinus and head. The fluid in my eye was becoming particularly irritating but not painful at all. This tube inserted into my nostril was causing intense pressure, not pain, but I was contending with it and again being reassured by the small green, who I was now starting to intensely focus on. At this point, I felt as though I was becoming dependent on the support I was receiving mentally from the small green and was starting to become uneasy, but still determined to see this examination through as best I could. There was then a snap in my nose that caused pain. As the snap occurred I sensed the small green have a wave of panic. In my opinion, because he did not know how I was going to respond to this, the creature was extremely concerned about my potential response. I sensed fear in him, he turned and looked over his left shoulder immediately at the tall gray, and turned back again as if he did not want the gray to have seen him looking. I was getting a sense of stress coming from the small green and of rising concern from the tall gray. I felt as though I did not want to disappoint either one of them and focused my thoughts and intentions to continue to maintain my composure and determination to allow the examination to its conclusion, whatever that may have been, I did so. I sensed relief from the small green and approval of the tall gray directly relating to how I responded to this unplanned deviation of procedure that went awry. I expected them to withdraw the nasal probe and was anticipating they would do this. Instead, I felt the insertion continue deeper, the pressure increased, and heard crunching coming from my nasal and sinus area. Now it started to cause severe pain. I audibly told them to stop, they did not. I started yelling stop, it hurts, I want you to stop now, they did not, and continued to insert it further. I learned in 1995 from a CAT scan that what had happened during the examination was that my septum had snapped completely in half, I will talk more about this later on in the report. Upon receiving a CAT scan in 95 the doctor said that the break had to occur when I was very young due to the nature of how the sinus tissue and septum had grown and developed. Back to the examination, I repeatedly said stop, it hurts, I want you to stop now. I was yelling at this point, I was angry and I had enough. I made a reassessment that they were not my friends. Instead, they were using me to serve their purpose, and my well-being was not actually their concern. It was clear that I was in pain and suffering, and that the probing was causing this. 
If they were truly concerned with my welfare, they would have immediately ceased this activity. However, they continued, disregarding my obvious trauma. The trust which we initially shared was progressively being betrayed and replaced by mutual animosity. The small green I was now sensing was angry at me for responding this way. The tall gray was angry and disappointed in the small green for selecting me. Turn. The small green was extremely angry with me because the tall gray was angry with the green. The tall gray being's disappointment turned to disgust with the green and myself prompting the gray to leave the examination area with a sense that all of the efforts, up to this point, were a complete waste of time. All of this, I was hearing or understanding in my mind, that's how all the feelings between the beings were being revealed to me. There was never any audible talking nor was there any other sound aside from a slight buzzing noise from the instruments as they descended and ascended from the light above the table. At this point, I felt intense anger and hatred coming from the small green directed at me saying only mentally, in my mind, You are not brave. You are not brave at all. With the fluid in my eye, the probe up my nose, the pressure, the pain, and the unnatural crunching sound as the probe penetrated deeper into my head, the intense feelings of hatred directed at me from the small green and the sense of overwhelming disappointment in me from the tall gray, I just wanted everything to stop. Now, I just started screaming similar to the screaming and feeling of fear for my life that I had experienced and felt when I had awoken over my bed floating and had started to be drawn towards the door of my bedroom. The small gray at the examination table above my head and to the left and right of me was pulling a film-like substance, translucent and rubbery in nature, over my face halfway down my chest. I thought they were trying to smother, suffocate, and kill me. I was then screaming for my life and thought I was going to die. I remember the film coming over my face and being pressed down firmly and was feeling as though I could not breathe and was about to die. I lost consciousness and it was my last recollection of this abduction experience. Obviously, they had returned me to the vacation home at some time during that evening. In retrospect, the following morning, I had no recollection of this traumatic event, and apparently nor did either of my guardians. I did not discuss this with either of my guardians, anything relating to this experience. They didn't mention anything to me, so it was clear that they had no recollection of the event as well. Neither of them to this day, as we discuss this frequently, recall anything, whatsoever. I had not recalled this experience for approximately two to three years after these events occurred. Then vivid memories started to occur of the specific events that I described. I also remembered being in the living room before going out into the front yard for the intense two-hour period when I was repeatedly drilling into my mind that this was real, this is happening. I began informing my guardians at the time, my parents, brother, sister, relatives, and friends of what had happened. No one believed me, as I had assumed the night of the abduction, which is specifically why I assured myself that evening that it was happening, it was real, and that I continue to insist to this day that this was a genuine abduction experience. I have openly discussed this with anyone I have been close to, as well as total strangers while traveling, and have found the variety of responses to be most entertaining. I have spoken to high-ranking personnel from the military as well as people with as much as 40 years in commercial aviation and they have admitted to me that there is an alien presence on this earth and that they believe that the general public should not be informed. During the 1970s I would watch any documentary related to UFOs and read any article that would appear in magazines or newspapers. I became a member of the Center for UFO Studies during the mid-70s. When the book Communion was released I intensely followed the related events involving the controversy that surrounded the authenticity of the non-fiction novel by Whitley Strieber. I recall the New York Times listing the book in their non-fiction section. I remember this causing intense debate on whether or not this was legal eventually leading to a congressional hearing and a ruling by some governing body that took the side of the New York Times and allowed the book to be listed in their non-fiction section. This was profound in its day, and to my knowledge, was the first step toward credibility that abductions were genuine. 
I remember speaking about my abduction continuously to anyone interested during this period of high-profile media attention. Contrary to popular perception and belief that any sightings or abductions were always related to mentally imbalanced or inebriated individuals, there have been, from the Roswell incident in 1947, high volume of extremely credible people. These particular individuals from a variety of fields were established and highly respected ranging from military service, law enforcement, aviation, and scientific communities. Many of them have stepped forward and validated the fact that there is a UFO phenomenon interacting with human societies and government authorities collectively on this planet. I have been following the UFO abduction phenomena since the 1970s to this day. In my lifetime, I have witnessed the transition of this field of UFO phenomenon being mocked and disrespected, not taken seriously at any level to its current state of intense scrutiny by debunkers and supporters of the most accomplished individuals in military service, aerospace, scientific communities, law enforcement, politics, noted and respected individuals in every walk of life. My opinion is that there has been an interaction with non-human beings that can date as far back as thousands of years ago. I would now like to record family history that I think relates directly to me being taken. In high school, I took a course on the World Wars. One of the course activities was interviewing someone who had been living in Germany at that time. My grandmother was born in 1901 in Germany. I asked her if she wouldn't mind doing an interview relating to her experiences. I did not know what the sensitivity of this issue would be to her. She immediately responded by saying, sure. I recorded the interview and submitted the cassette tape to my teacher. I don't remember if the tape was returned or not, or if so, I lost it, I still wish I had this. During the interview, my grandmother told me that she did not like what she was seeing during the early 1930s. Although married at the time to a well-established man from a family of the German aristocracy, she decided to leave on her own and move to America. She then took a job working in a diner as a waitress to support herself. During the interview, she stated that her husband followed her and stayed for two years, going to the beach every day and not working. She told him she wanted a divorce, and he stayed several months more thinking this was just a phase. Her intentions were then made clear, so he then returned to Germany. His in-laws then came and pleaded with her to have a baby with their son. They would take the baby back and raise it in Germany. And she no longer needed to be involved in their lives. Aristocrats were not known to marry into a low socioeconomic class that was not of their own status. I wondered why they were so intense about her being the mother of their grandchild when they easily could have forgotten her and selected another wife. Being that most of the nation was in economic distress, post-World War I, his economic status alone would have drawn thousands of women to him. I am sure he knew this, yet why was he focused on my grandmother? Traveling back and forth over the Atlantic, during this time period, was a risky expedition, and quite costly, not without peril. During the first Olympics, after World War I, my grandmother was training with the Olympic women's diving team. This is when she caught his eye. In that environment, and with the current social structure, there had to have been many other prominent attractive females. Why her? In response to the request of her in-laws to have a baby with their son, and then abandon it, she said she had never heard such a ridiculous thing, further stating that she wanted nothing to do with them or their son and continued with her divorce proceeding. It was granted. She met my grandfather and remarried. To my knowledge, the German government recovered the first alien craft in 1936. To my understanding, there was also a surviving ET from this crash. From several documentaries that I have reviewed, it is clear the Germans were interacting with off-world life forms, and they were sharing their technology with German scientists. They were both collaborating directly with a hybrid program and reverse engineering simultaneously. I have heard testimony on these documentaries that Hitler declared he had flown on both UFO and unidentified submerged object craft and had left Earth's atmosphere. 
If you accept these as facts, it is most reasonable to adopt the reasoning that the ET were receiving enthusiastic cooperation from the Nazi regime directly relating to their interactive ET-human hybrid life form agenda. I believe my grandmother's husband and in-laws may have had knowledge of this. This is pure speculation, and for some reason, she was a candidate for this program. I have also been made aware that Dwight Eisenhower was approached by two ET races and a proposal was made by them that if he granted non-interference of human abduction and the collateral suppression of evidence and testimony of these abductions, they would share their developed technologies with the leaders of this country. To my understanding, he agreed. All the information I have come across relating to abduction experiences lead to a single initiative, the creation of a hybrid life form between a human and a non-human. I believe this to be an undeniable, tangible fact. There seems to be no established pattern for a clear outline relating to how candidates from our species are selected, that I know of. I believe my grandmother was approached by her husband and in-laws for the hybrid program. I don't think they revealed this to her. They were part of the ruling German aristocracy that survived World War I when the Treaty of Versailles was signed. Information was revealed to me from family members after my grandfather and grandmother had passed away, which I believe is relevant to my personal theory of bloodline, consecutive generation abduction. I was told that my grandfather stated that my mother was not his daughter. I was further informed that prior to the pregnancy of my mother, he had taken my grandmother to a hospital in Manhattan and forced her to get an abortion in the 1950s, again stating that he was not the father of that child. The events involved with the abortion procedures in this era and the related consequences of this traumatic experience for my grandfather and grandmother were too horrendous to be repeated when my grandmother conceived my mother. Even though my grandfather insisted that my mother was not his child, his emotions led him to allow the pregnancy to continue because of prior, horrific, experiences. I had an extremely close relationship with my grandfather and I believe I was also the son that he never had. He was extremely organized and the most meticulous, methodic man I have known. I have to say that if he felt and acted as strongly as he did, I agreed with him. It is clear to anyone that if you have not slept with your wife and she becomes pregnant, that child is not yours. I cannot prove what I am going to say and it is speculation, but I believe that my grandmother had been taken and had been impregnated as a candidate in the ET hybrid objective. I believe my mother may be a hybrid embryo, and that I, in turn, may be a third generation hybrid. There was a fourth generation abduction attempt, which was prevented. This was discussed and it was decided there was to be no mention of this experience. Again I would like to state that this is speculation, however, there is a strong potential that there could be sequential abductions from generation to generation. If there is any knowledge regarding bloodline lineage abduction experiences, I would like to hear from you. There were two issues I was discussing with a mutual UFO network representative who at one time was a consultant for TV programs and movies. I believe that both of these relate to my mother and I being taken. These two highlights were from the television series X-Files. I directly asked him, are TV programs and movies that claim to be based upon truth and facts relating to the UFO abduction phenomenon from actual events accurate? His response was this. Is there truth in UFO, alien-based TV programming and movies? Yes. How much truth? That is unknown. When I was consulting, I found the people who inquired may take fragments of truth to make the claim that it is based on actual events, and then Hollywood it up to sensationalize the actual event to sell the broadcast or movie and increase profits. That is why I stopped consulting because they weren't genuinely interested in the truth. The truth was exploited to make money. Regarding myself, in first grade, on parent-teacher night, my teacher, a nun, Sister Mary, I still remember you. Then you changed your name to Sister P, stated to my mother, with emphasis, he has an exceptionally high IQ. 
I remember her tone of voice and facial expression to this day. In one of the episodes of The X-Files, Scully and Mulder came across files stored in an abandoned mine, vaulted. The files were all of the IQ tests that have been administered to all of the school children in the country. The second episode relating to my mother was when Scully approached a group of women that were mutual UFO network members who had all claimed to be abducted and impregnated, who were all dying one after another from brain cancer. My mother had cancer five separate times in her life. First, uterine cancer, then a double mastectomy, cancer in the sciatic nerve, cancer in the lymph nodes, and finally brain cancer which ended her life. Again, speculating, I believe there to be a high probability supported by this particular episode from the X-Files that my mother was taken and impregnated with me. If anyone has information regarding this theory, please forward it to me. I would now like to relate to what I will refer to as points of awareness. 1. 1995 Initial Revelation of Spinal Cord Artifact, Chiropractic, Neurologist While receiving chiropractic care in 1995 during a particular session I received a cervical adjustment. I immediately became paralyzed from the neck down. My back arched, my arms extended outward and my body had the shape of a cross. The chiropractor repeatedly asked me what was going on and what I felt. I told him I could not move and it felt like electricity was static in my body. There was no sensation of pain and I would describe it as the same feeling as when you receive an electronic impulse from a TENS unit, which was very popular at this time in the chiropractic field. This condition persisted for approximately 15 minutes and gradually dissipated. The doctor was understandably highly concerned, and we discussed the nature of what caused this reaction and the sensation it had produced. At my next weekly visit, I came with my girlfriend at the time, as she was concerned when I described what had happened on the previous visit. The doctor adjusted me and the same reaction occurred. I have seen over 30 chiropractors and this man in particular has an exceptional concern for the welfare of his patients. He was very upset. On this occasion, my ability to speak was affected and I could not initially answer any questions he was asking. After 20 minutes I regained all movement and could speak clearly. He said in no uncertain terms, I cannot continue until I see what's going on inside you. He started a series of tests. What I recall most clearly was an instrument that on one end had a small metal wheel, and he was rolling it repeatedly up my arm from my inner wrist to my shoulder. This wheel felt as if it were a razor blade and caused so much pain I eventually told him he had to stop. I repeatedly looked at my arm waiting for them to bleed as I was so sure that he had sliced them during this procedure. He would not discuss with me why this test was causing so much pain as I had repeatedly inquired as to why. I was insistent upon what he thought it might be or what the possibilities were that this test was designed to detect, but he repeatedly said he did not want to discuss it. He insisted on having me get an MRI and did not want to discuss anything until he read the report. I received an MRI from an open imaging system and he informed me that it revealed in my spinal cord what the radiologist was referring to as an artifact. He then insisted I receive an MRI from a closed system as this would produce a sharper image. I did so. When he received the report, we scheduled a visit for a consultation. When I met with him in his office, he was elated and repeatedly informed me that I was okay. Upon showing me the report, he specifically covered a portion of the printing with his thumb and brought my attention to the segment of the report that stated brain normal. I asked the doctor for the report as it was odd that he deliberately covered a portion of it with his thumb. I don't think he was trying to be deceptive, but he clearly was trying. I'm sure for my own benefit, to prevent me from seeing what he was covering. I was intensely curious and I wanted to know what it said. He said that he wants to hold on to it and discuss it with other doctors. I again asked him for it and he again stated that he wanted to hold on to it with a firm emphasis in his voice. I then asked a third time if he could make me a copy so I could show it to a family member in the radiology field. This way they can circulate it among their co-workers. 
I thought this was a very reasonable request and anticipated his cooperation. Then completely out of character, he said, No, I want to hold on to the report and discuss it with some doctors I know. He was acting completely out of character at this point and I was getting irate with him. This whole exchange between him and me was completely bizarre. From my point of view, I paid for the test and it belongs to me. However, I agreed. At my next visit two weeks later I asked him if he had gotten any feedback from the doctors he planned to confer with. He said no. I then asked if I had the report to show to my family member. He said I gave it to you, I said you did not. He again insisted he gave them to me on my last visit. I said doctor, now I was getting angry and I was showing it. You're going to tell me that you don't remember when I repeatedly asked for it and you persistently told me you wanted to hold on to it. At this point, I was being very, very firm. He leaned back and tilted his head and a very distant trance-like look came over his face. He was deeply pondering what I had just said to him as if he were trying to recollect it because I was being intensely direct with him. I got the impression that he did not recall this conversation at all and was completely blank when he was trying to remember it. He said I must have it in your file and went to get it. He returned with a look on his face with a merge of disbelief, uncertainty, concern, and slight fear. He then said to me in a very uncertain nature, I must have given them to you because they are not in your file. Someone took it out of his file. He most definitely did not give it to me and it was not in the file. There is only one conclusion that can be reached. Someone removed it. He said this in a way as though he did not believe that he gave it to me but it was not in his file, and he must have concluded that he did. During this entire conversation, he seemed to be drawing himself into a deeper state of uncertainty, combined with a sincere desire to recall something that he should know but didn't, and found this extremely puzzling in his own mind. He seemed distressed. It was clear to me that he did not have it, and at this point, I did not see any benefit in debating the issue any further. I then asked him what he thought had been causing the pain during the radial arm test and the paralysis from the adjustment. He told me he thought that I had brain or spinal cancer from my symptoms. He then insisted that I see a highly respected neurologist, whom all of the people in the medical field go to see when there is any nerve-related disease or condition for themselves or their family members. I discussed this with friends in the medical field and they unanimously agreed I am quoting this man as the best. I made an appointment and at the initial consolation, I brought the MRIs and showed them to him. The chiropractor had already discussed with him the reason for the visit was to determine what the artifact in my cervical spine was. Both radiologists stated in their reports they were unable to determine what this artifact was. The neurologist looked at it and said that he had been anticipating my visit and was very interested in seeing the images as well. He said that he had never seen anything like this before. I believe this man has been practicing for 30 years. He said he had no idea of what it could be and informed me he was attending a national neurologic convention the following week. He asked if he could make copies to bring to the convention and wanted to circulate them amongst his colleagues to see if he could get any information regarding what this artifact actually was. I told him to take the original film, and he did so. We scheduled a visit pending his return. During the consultation, there were many inquiries and tests he performed. During the queue and a session and the physical tests, I found his personality to be very distasteful, arrogant, and disrespectful. At the conclusion of all the tests, his initial diagnosis was that they did not appear to be any nerve dysfunction. He attached me to a nerve monitoring device that measured the speed of neuroimpulse, and he said it was fine. We made the appointment for the follow-up visit. I thanked him and I was very curious about what the results would be from his conferring with the other neurologists at the convention. During this waiting period, I reflected on his personality and his manner, and my distaste for him kept growing. I informed the chiropractor that I did not want to see him again, but the chiropractor insisted. I did not go to the scheduled visit, informed the chiropractor, and he redoubled his insistence. I made a second appointment, but I did not show. 
Although I was intensely curious as to what may have been discovered at the conference, I thought the neurologist could more accurately relate to the chiropractor any analysis of what the artifact could be directly to him. The chiropractor seemed to be determined to have me see this man again. The only reason I went back to see him was to appease the chiropractor and his heartfelt concern for my welfare. I scheduled a third appointment. The policy for the neurologist was a 72-hour notice cancellation and a $400 per visit fee. At this point technically I owed him $800 plus the $400 for the third appointment. I had no money to pay him for any of his fees. I told the chiropractor this and he said you can make payments. I already discussed it with the neurologist as the chiropractor was acting as my liaison. I took the last appointment for the day which was 5 o'clock and showed up on time. Approximately an hour went by and there was nobody else in the waiting room. The receptionist commented that she did not know what was taking so long because he had no patient in his office at the time. I told her it was okay and apologized at this time for not making the two previous appointments. The doctor then opened the door and started walking towards the receptionist and started to speak to her. He then saw me indirectly in his peripheral line of sight and instantaneously turned red in his face. He jumped from where he was standing backward into his office and slammed the door shut behind him. To illustrate his reaction, it was like catching a small child doing something they know they should not be doing and they instinctively jumped back when seen to make it appear that they were not doing whatever it was they knew they shouldn't be. The receptionist looked at me, shrugged her shoulders, and put her hands up in a gesture. What was that? She looked at me shaking her head. I looked back at her with the same gesture. We did not exchange any words and I continued to wait. Approximately half an hour went by and I was wondering what was taking so long and why he reacted the way he did. He came to the door finally. I think he was trying to regain his composure during this time to face me. When he opened the door, he was still flushed red in the face and trembling. I walked into his office and first apologized for missing the two previous appointments and attempted to establish a payment plan for them as well as the current visit. He responded saying, No, no. That's okay, don't worry. There'll be no charge for anything. That's fine, that's fine, it's all right. I was very surprised at this. I didn't know what to say. I told him that I'll pay for it. Just give me time. No, no. There'll be no charge for anything. I then asked him what he found out. I showed it to everyone, and nobody knew what it was. I was walking to the chair in front of his desk. While he was telling me this, he quickly walked over to a table, picked up the MRIs, and laid them across my chest. I thought we were going to sit down and discuss at length any number of possibilities or potential doctors he would refer me to or at least speak about what some of the other doctors at the convention may have theorized. I never made it to the chair. In a semi-forceful way, he turned me around physically and escorted me to the door and said, Everything will be all right. Just go back and see the chiropractor. I started to ask him what he thought, but he cut me short and repeated twice. You'll be okay. Everything will be all right. Just go back and see the chiropractor. This impressed me as being a complete and total contradiction to the first visit when his curiosity was intense. It is natural for people in any field, particularly when they are a specialist in their field, whatever that may be, that when they come across something unknown they are driven to discover what it is. The entire medical field is always on the watch for anything new and unknown, so they can identify it, treat it if necessary, and then convey this to other doctors so that the entire medical practice can advance collectively. The fact that he was at first so interested and then completely uninterested is a profound contradiction, especially in light of the fact that he is clearly a leader in the field of neurology and respected as such. I related this experience recently to a member of a UFO support group meeting that I attend. He said that someone got to him. There are people out there that monitor conventions because they know that these implants, artifacts are going to be revealed, and in some way, they intimidated the neurologist not to pursue identifying or discussing with me what the artifact in my spinal cord was. 
I now believe this to be a completely accurate assessment of why the neurologist responded the way he did. I explained what happened at the neurologist's office to the chiropractor, and he thought it was just as bizarre as I did. He did not discuss anything with you at all? I said no. Well, what was the point of the visit then? I don't know. Ask him. The chiropractor frowned and shook his head in a very disappointing manner. He then offered to give him some time, and he was going to find someone else that could help identify the artifact. I thanked him for his concern and said to him, I have no money. I am not taking any dyes or contrasts into my body. I absolutely will have no operation, so what is the point of any further inquiry? If I had something in me, I would not stop until I found out what it was. I explained to him, even if someone found out what it was, I don't have the money for an operation or treatment, and I cannot afford to go from doctor to doctor until somebody does. He said he understood my position from the financial aspect and agreed that you could see any number of doctors and might not know anything and that he does understand the financial impact and the unfortunate reality that it does take money for treatment and people are limited by their financial ability. He then repeated that he would be obsessed if he had something inside of him to find out what it was. I said to him, I could understand and appreciate your philosophy on this matter but I don't feel the same as you do. He then said I respect your decision as well. At this point, we continued with normal chiropractic care and did not discuss this issue again. 2. 1996 Sinus Implant, Autolaryngology or ENT Ear, Nose, and Throat In the spring of 1996, I was scuba diving <coughs> in me while vacationing in Las Vegas. I dive exclusively in the Caribbean and wear a thin neoprene vest so my skin is not irritated by the tank straps and weight belt. I'm not familiar with diving in fresh water at all. The seasonal temperature of the water year-round is 80 degrees, no need for a wetsuit for me personally. The dive master at Lake Mead explained to me that there is an ice melt cold water runoff that feeds the Colorado River and in the spring the water in Lake Mead is very cold, particularly in deeper waters. We dove into a 90-feet wreck that day. He suggested I wear a 3 8 neoprene farmer pants suit, and the top portion of the wetsuit had legs that extended down to the knee and were 3 8 thick as well. I never dove with this much neoprene and was unsure what the buoyancy coefficient would be. In salt water, I wear 18 pounds which makes me slightly negative in buoyancy. I discussed this with the dive master and he suggested 22 pounds to compensate for the additional neoprene. At the start of the dive, I was positive and found it difficult to descend during the first atmosphere, which is 33 feet. He handed me some additional weight bags and I forcefully swam downward and proceeded with the dive. At the end of the dive, we planned a decompression stop at 15 feet. Beginning at 20 feet, the wetsuit began to refill with air, and I floated directly to the surface. The dive master came up and grabbed me by the ankles and was trying to pull me back down to 15 feet to complete the decompression interval. I struggled downward as well, concerned about the bends, a condition that occurs when nitrogen bubbles form in your bloodstream during a rapid change in pressure. When we got to the deck of the ship, my nose was bleeding, and the dive master was concerned. I still wanted to make the second dive, so he increased the surface interval and picked a different location for the second dive that was not as deep as the one he initially planned. He also suggested I double the decompression interval. I did as he suggested. At the conclusion of the dive when we surfaced, my entire mask was full of blood and poured onto the deck. It took approximately an hour to stop the bleeding. My nose bled intermittently for the remainder of the vacation and on a daily basis for six weeks after I returned home. I do not like seeing doctors at all. My experience with physicians on an unrelated matter revealed to me that they make opinions and assessments, and there is a direct contradiction and completely different diagnosis conclusions from doctor to doctor. I went to 11 doctors for the same issue and was prescribed seven completely different treatment suggestions. None of them knew I had seen other physicians and none of their diagnosis was in harmony with any other conclusions drawn by them collectively. 
In one case, I saw two partners from the same office deliberately on different days with different receptionists in the same week and got two completely contradictory prescribed treatment directives. I had to see a doctor for my consistent nosebleeds and chose an ENT that a friend suggested. At the visit, the doctor said he wanted a CAT scan of the sinuses and mentioned he had never had a patient before with the symptom that I had. After reviewing the CAT scan on the return visit, he said, It appears that I have an infection in one of the sinuses. He seemed deeply disturbed, extremely concerned, and emotionally unstable. This was in sharp contrast to how he conducted himself. And that was the end of his report. He then posted images of his CAT scan. I hope that everyone has a happy Halloween. Halloween also marks the channel's second anniversary of two years of daily uploads. I would like to thank you for watching or listening for the last two years. I have a couple of special... But I am originally from San Diego. My first UFO encounter was around 1970. I live in Anadarko, Oklahoma, but I am originally from San Diego. My first UFO encounter was around 1976. We, my father, mother, and I moved from San Diego to Spring Valley. My mother worked nights as a nurse for Mercy Hospital downtown from 10 p.m. until 8 a.m. One night after we dropped my mother off at work, we did our usual nighttime routine and stopped by Taco Bell. On the way home going east, I spotted an object outside my window facing south. It appeared to be a white orb-like object just above the hills following us on a horizontal course. I pointed it out to my father who at first thought I was joking or making up something. When he saw it, he became afraid. Knew a little bit about my father. He was around 6'8 and the toughest man alive. I never saw him afraid of anything. We continued on home, both of us looking at the object which climbed out of view into the sky. We quickly went home and rushed into the house, my father leading the way by unlocking the door. We set our food on the railing and I closed the door when the doorbell rang. I thought it was one of my father's friends who occasionally stopped by after we took my mom to work. I quickly opened the door over the protest of my father and saw a being standing in front of our door and a white glowing disc-like craft over our street. The being had the head of a male lion and a black robe with stars, galaxies, and comets. The strange thing was that the objects on the robe were moving. The spiral galaxies swirling, comets shooting, stars twinkling. Then the lion-headed being roared and my father and I fell back towards the floor and everything went black. My mother found us the next day in the hallway with the front door open and me and my father asleep on the floor. She woke us up yelling what we were doing and why wasn't I at school. I tried to explain what we saw last night, but my father told me to be quiet. Not being a child of the 70s, I knew not to disobey my father and attempted to tell my mother later after school while my father was at work. I will give my mother credit she listened, but I don't think she believed me. Then in 1985 I was 15 and living in El Reno, Oklahoma. A bunch of friends and I were leaving a friend of ours house and by a bunch, I mean about 15 or 18 guys. It was around 8 p.m. At night we were going to Booker T. Washington's gym to play basketball when an object fell out of the sky from the south heading to the north. The object was making a buzzing noise almost like a helicopter but louder. We all looked up and saw a large ball of light about 20 feet in diameter falling out of the sky. It smelled like sulfur and was changing color from white, yellow, green, blue, and red then back to white. It looked like it was landing or crashing at the neighborhood park about 10 blocks away. One of the guys looked at me and suggested we all go see what it was. The reason why he looked at me was that I was into science and jokingly they called me the professor. I got a sudden feeling of dread thinking about investigating the object and said no. Everyone shrugged and we went on to play basketball. My biggest encounter was in 1991. I was in the Oklahoma National Guard, a new father and the first Iraq war was on and I was waiting to get deployed. 
I brought the new year in with my child and my girlfriend. Since they stayed at her mother's house, I had to leave. It was between 1 and 1.30 a.m. I was walking across the band field towards home when I saw an object in the northwest. It looked like a star with a trail streaming from it and white objects falling toward the ground. At first I thought it was the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but then I remembered he comes from the east. So my next thought was that the Russians launched a missile and this was it. Tinker Air Force Base is about 25 miles from El Reno. Stuck with indecision about whether I should warn my mother and little brother or my girlfriend and child I stood there watching. The object was coming closer still with a tail and with objects falling to the ground. Then beams of light shot out in front of it so I thought it was a plane. I felt sorry for the plane's people and thought it was a 747. I had never seen a plane crash and I continued watching. Then the strangest thing happened. The headlights started sweeping the ground. I thought while well, they are looking for a place to ditch, then it occurred to me when did 747s get searchlights. One beam of light went to the north and the other to the south, and then they both came together on me standing in the middle of the band field and went out. It was right in front of me when my sight came back. The UFO, disc-shaped with the back end blown off. Debris was falling off the back end towards the ground, but when it reached the ground it just evaporated. The UFO was trailing smoke and it had a row of windows on its side. The lights inside the UFO were emergency red and I saw silhouettes of beams running back and forth. Then one stopped and looked down at me. I thought to myself, here's my chance to make contact with someone from another planet. I had a mini flashlight on my keychain and I flashed it up at it a couple of times with no response. So I waved with my right arm and it copied me, then with both arms and it copied me. I heard a vehicle stop on the street behind me and a man and I was deeply concerned about its well-being. We stood there looking at each other for what felt like hours when another figure who was running past stopped, looked down at me, grabbed my friend and went to the undamaged part of the craft. Six balls of light then a seventh shot towards the southwest all changing colors from white, yellow, green, blue, red, and back to white. I ran home and woke my mother up frantically telling her what I saw, then to a party where I knew a friend of mine was in. I told him and he thought I was full of it but I convinced him to go to his house to watch the news. We were watching Channel 4 News when an anchor woman, Yuzi Brown Washington, came on and said, if you saw an object in the sky it was and then she was cut off. All my friend could do was look at me with his mouth open. We stayed up until 5 that morning waiting for her to come back on with news of what I saw. I'm 52. I've only told this to a handful of people I felt I could trust. I live in Nova Cruz, Rio Grande do Norte, Brazil. I usually go on walks and hikes with my friends on the nearby fields, grasslands, and hills. There are lots of green areas around the place. We always go together for safety and also because it's good to have someone to talk to. But one day, all my friends were busy and I was left alone for the hike. I only went there in the first place because I felt bored and thought that some adventure could spice my day up. The first hours were okay. It was the 10th day of July at about 4 p.m. I felt refreshed when I saw that beautiful landscape. There are those huge rocks scattered around so I decided to climb them as usual. I climbed up the biggest rock that was there. I and my friends call it the whale rock since it kind of looks like the back of a whale and also is pretty huge. I got a nice view from up there. I could see trees, cacti, bushes, grass, etc. But one thing caught my attention quickly. It was this person wearing a silly costume. I don't know very well how to describe it, but the best way I have to explain how it looked is that it kind of looked like those cartoon depictions of a beehive. I got worried because it is usually really hot in this part of the country. It was this person wearing a silly costume. I don't know very well how to describe it, but the best way I have to explain how it looked is that it kind of looked like those cartoon depictions of a beehive. I got worried because it is usually really hot in this part of the country.
I climbed down to the ground and started walking toward the hive man. He seemed to notice me and as I got closer I started to notice how weird he was. His movements were really fluid but also really mechanical too. The fabric of the suit seemed to have a metallic glow to it while having a rusty aspect. It had no facial features but two amber-colored discs that reflected like mirrors on where its eyes should be. At first, the hive man seemed curious about me, staring and investigating my looks. It even tried to get closer and seemed to have really friendly intentions. I wasn't scared either, I just found the whole situation weird. That was until the other hive man showed up. The second one was different from the first one. It was taller and bulkier, and instead of two discs for eyes it had just one visor-like thing. I felt intimidated when I saw it from a distance. I think they were as tall as three meters or two and a half meters. I ran towards the bushes and hid from them. They both were looking at each other and making gestures as if they were talking. They then started walking towards some vegetation. I tried to follow them so I could track the hive man and take a picture as proof, but they vanished. I'm still confused, amazed, and a bit scared about what happened. I still go to that same spot in search of any traces of the hive man, but it's all gone. I was reclining on my couch, staring at the ceiling while I listened to some music. If it helps, I was listening to the who. A little while later I noticed myself zoning out to thoughts and theories and what-if scenarios that would just give me stress. So I snap out of it and look to my side and there he is. The Michelin Man. About a foot away from my couch. Hand held up and head leaning in towards me. He didn't look scary. I wasn't scared. I was just curious. It was as if he was about to grab me, but I saw him and like some cartoon, he stopped midway. And I saw him walk backwards while still looking at me. He went behind the curtains of the gallery and just sort of disappeared between them. For some really strange reason, I didn't feel like getting up and investigating. I just laid back and resumed my music. It just kind of sunk into me now and I thought I'd share. I don't feel scared or threatened or anything. In fact I find myself smiling a little thinking about it. I don't know what's really going on. I had another weird encounter with an anteater looking humanoid so I don't know what's up with my house and humanoids. But that was definitely far scarier than this. When I was in my early teens, I witnessed something that I have never been able to explain. This occurred in northern Minnesota. I have included a picture of what it looked like to me. I was in the woodlands behind the barn around 9 p.m. It was in July 1971 and I was out there with my collie dog Bonnie. Bonnie started barking and running towards the far edge of the woods. I called for her, but she continued running. I started to chase after her. As I got nearer to the small field, Bonnie was laying down looking towards the sky. I looked in the same direction and saw a bright yellow light coming towards us. The light got brighter and larger. Bonnie barked a few more times and ran back into the woods, she was scared. Well, I was scared also. The light was hovering above me. I felt paralyzed, I wanted to run but just couldn't move. I looked at the light and started to make out a shape. I have always said that it was a balloon man. It was round in the body and segmented legs and arms. The head was a bright yellow light. I couldn't see a face, just a bright blinding light. It hovered for a minute then moved towards me. It was right in front of me. I'd say it was 8 feet tall and very wide. 
There was an intense heat coming from it also, I had trouble breathing and was very uncomfortable. Then it started to hover and circle around me. I thought I was going to pass out. Then suddenly it just disappeared, simply vanished. As soon as it did, I dropped to the ground and started shivering. I could move but I was so cold and felt weak and sick. I laid there for a long time. I heard my mom calling and then Bonnie was beside me barking. My mom was frantic and tried to get me to my feet. I couldn't stand it. I was just too weak to move. Soon my older brothers showed up and they carried me to the house. I was sick in bed for about a week. The doctor said I had a severe reaction to poison sumac, which I know wasn't correct. I had a sore red rash on my face and arms. The balloon man burned me somehow and had weakened me. After I recuperated I told my mom what had happened. She was surprised by what I described. She knew I didn't have poison sumac, but she didn't question the doctor. I never told anyone else about my contact with the balloon man, but I told my brothers not to go into the far field at night. They just laughed. A sighting of capital importance took place on the island of Reunion, which is situated in the Indian Ocean between Mauritius and Madagascar, on the plain known as La Plaine de Cafres. The date of the sighting was July 31, 1968, and the time, 9 o'clock a.m. The witness, M. Luce Fontaine, is aged 31, a farmer, married, with a family, his wife being a teacher. Everybody is in agreement in considering him a serious, hard-working man, who is completely worthy of trust. I was at the kilometer 21 mark, in a small clearing in the middle of a forest of acacia trees, that morning, and I was bending down and picking some grass for my rabbits when I suddenly saw a sort of oval-shaped cabin in the clearing. It was 25 meters from me, and as though suspended at a height of 4 or 5 meters from the ground. The extremities of it were dark blue, the center part lighter, more transparent rather like the windscreen of a Peugeot 404. Above and below it had what looked like two glass feet of shining metal. In the center of the cabin were two individuals with their backs towards me. The one on the left turned right round and so faced me. The right simply turned his head round towards me. But all the same I had time to catch a glimpse of his face. Round and so faced me. He was standing, small, about 90 centimeters in height, enveloped from head to foot in a sort of one-piece overall a bit like the suit worn by the Michelin man. The one on the right simply turned his head round towards me, but all the same I had time to catch a glimpse of his face, which was partly masked by a sort of helmet. Then both turned their backs to me, and there was a flash, as strong as the electric arc of a welding machine. Everything went white around me. A powerful heat was given off and then as if it were a sort of blast of wind, and a few seconds later there was nothing there anymore. Then approached the spot over which the object had been. There were no marks. The object had a diameter of 4 or 5 meters and was about 2 half meters measured through from top to bottom. It was of a bluish color, with white on the upper and lower parts. I told my wife all about it, and then the gendarmerie, and everyone at once believed me. On Sunday, March 14, 1976, the last thing on the minds of Vicent Coral and his wife Carmen was an encounter with beings from another world. Their son had just been drafted in Spain's compulsory military service, and tearful goodbyes had been exchanged at the drafty induction center located in the town of Marines. 
After spending the day in the local area, the Corals began the long trip home to the town of Almanara, driving along small roads of Spain's Castellan region. At around 10 p.m., the couple found itself facing a strange phenomenon in the night skies, a brilliant white oval that floated lazily to the left of their own car. Believing at first that it might be the headlights of a car on a nearby hill, the Corals steered their Renault 4 liters toward their ultimate destination. No sooner had the vehicle gone a few hundred feet did they become aware of the fact that all was not well. The alarmed couple thought that they were driving into a luminous tornado of sorts as a very curious object appeared to rise out of the ground. Bathing the object with his car's high beams, Mr. Coral was startled to see that it was a person. I suppose that it had two legs, he would tell distinguished Spanish investigator Juan José Benitez, who investigated the case, because it reminded me of a human profile. However, since they, the legs were so close together, it looked more like a column than a human being. The thing was tall and wore a close-fitting, one-piece outfit. The outlandish entity stood on the ground in what Vicent Coral described as a military ten-hut position, armed stiffly at its side and ramrod straight, looking at the oncoming vehicle. The couple's initial fascination changed to fear as the Renault's lights suddenly went out, leaving them in pitch blackness. The smell of burning wires soon filled the passenger compartment and Coral was forced to pull over. While all this happened, the entity vanished into the darkness. Vicent and Carmen Coral, their car's electrical system ruined, were left to wonder what had happened. According to researcher Benitez, Mrs. Coral proved to have a much better recall of the situation than her husband, adding the interesting detail that the entity's outfit was made of narrow, slightly inflated bands from its neck down to its waist. She went as far as to describe the entity as similar to Bibendum, the world-famous Michelin man, only less so. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. Everything's all good. The bloop was an ultra-low-frequency underwater sound recorded by NOAA in 1997. It was unlike any other sounds ever recorded underwater, due to its frequency and the fact it was recorded by other sensors thousands of miles from its estimated source. It is consistent with other marine animal noises due to its rapidly changing frequency but it would be an animal many times larger than the blue whale, the largest animal to ever exist. The consensus by most scientists is that it was caused by geological activity. What is your view slash x slash? Oh, that's the black carpet. Allegedly, a bit of an urban legend amongst deep sea divers. I'm that diver and on if anyone was in the last deep sea thread. I've heard about this thing a couple times from co-workers and buddies. I don't remember the details of the full story right now to be honest, but I'll talk to my buddy sometime and see if he remembers and post him on here. But the basic gist that I can remember is that this thing is some sort of colony organism, like a giant moving coral. It's a giant black carpet of macrobiotic cells that crawls over the ocean floor, sifting the nutrients with millions of tiny feelers. Nobody has ever gotten a good estimate of the size other than it's big and apparently it makes a noise similar to this bloop thing. One guy apparently saw it swimming slash riding the currents as well, so it does more than just crawl on the ocean floor. I suppose you could call it a one-of-a-kind organism, but I'm not sure if that applies to colony organisms like this. Macrobiotic cells so you're saying the ocean floor is covered by a giant jellyfish? Essentially, yes. According to how the black carpet has been described to me, 
it shares many similarities to a jellyfish. One story I heard had a diver getting stung by some sort of large feeler strand that apparently hangs off the top, similar to a jellyfish. There was this really old retired diver I talked to who claimed to have seen it. He claimed to have seen an entire decomposing sperm whale being consumed by the carpet. I should really make a post compiling all the stories I've heard about this thing. So I talked to my buddy and I'm going to start writing up some of the stories I've heard about the black carpet. This is the first story I heard of it, from some Finnish bloke with a strong accent. He was doing a deep sea dive repairing some sort of cable, I assume it was probably fiber optic. As he told it, initially he thought he was in the wrong spot because he couldn't find the cable anywhere. He starts searching and eventually finds one and just the one. Sheared clean through. He gets his dive buddy to stay with that end of the line while he goes looking for the other end, swimming in a straight line in the direction of the other line. In his estimation, he swam about half a mile before he found the other end of the line. He stressed to me that the entire half a mile middle section of the line was just completely gone. It was a huge deal and everyone thought it was the Russians, but this guy was sure that this carpet thing had done it. Said he heard the noise it apparently makes even thought he never saw it. This next story is from my buddy. He heard it from a guy who heard it from another guy who heard it from another guy so take it with a heavy grain of salt. This guy is doing a dive, depth, location, what he was doing never got specified. Just that he was really deep. He starts hearing this odd noise that gets associated with the carpet a lot. The way he described was similar to that video of the bloop. Ultra low pitch sort of like a super creepy distorted whale song. As he gets closer he hears this almost static crackling noise as well. The way he described it was like a million prawns getting cracked open at once if that makes any difference. As he gets closer to the bottom, the noises are getting louder and louder. At this point he was thinking that he's hearing some sort of sonar from a submarine and that some jackass submarine crew is playing a joke on him. When the guy gets to the bottom he shines his light around, trying to find whatever he's looking for. And what he was was that the seafloor had literally come to life and was crawling past him. This is probably the best description of the carpet you're going to get. According to this guy, carpet is at least a mile long slash wide. Made mostly of these strange black feelers that apparently make the strange popping noise. Most of the top is covered in various sand, rocks, debris, with feelers poking through. Also a few long transparent stalks as he described them that float upwards. Apparently some of these were like 20 feet long. According to the guy it was singing which doesn't make any fucking sense to me, but whatever. Guy swam back up to the surface and claimed he had an equipment malfunction came back down a couple hours later and got there just in time to see the last of the thing disappear. Apparently it stretched as far as the eye could see. Which isn't that far at the bottom of the ocean, but still. This one is an old urban legend that's been floating around the diving community for years. Never heard a concrete source of it, 
so emoted probably never happened. Especially since it involves a submarine crew, so I'm not sure how a diver would have heard about it, since as far as I know submarine crews usually stay inside their ship. Anyway, here goes. Dot submarine is doing something, either war games, or patrolling for Chinese slash Russian slash North Korean slash bad guy submarines. The story isn't terribly consistent about this, I hear it different every single time. For whatever reason, they are not using active sonar because they want to avoid detection, floating dead somewhere a couple hundred meters off the seafloor. They're just sitting there, chilling and listening with their sensors trying to detect enemy submarines or whatever, when they start hearing the noise. Their sensors can't make any sense of it, and it's getting louder at an alarming rate. Starts out as something only the sensors can hear, but before long the entire crew is hearing this strange, distorted humming slash singing that people always associate with the carpet. Captain thinks the only explanation is that it's some sort of new sonar slash jamming technology and order the sonar crew to send out a ping to locate the source of the noise. This is the part of the story that stays the most consistent, I assume because it's the most memorable. The sonar operator shouts out new sonar contact, bearing. Sir. What's our depth? The captain replies, 500m or whatever depth the submarine is supposed to be at. The sonar operator replies. But sir, the sonar says the seafloor is 10m below us. The captain says that's nonsense, then walks over to the sonar station. Checks the reading, then walks over to the helmsman and checks the depth. Checks the nautical charts for where they are. Somehow apparently, the ocean has gotten about 200m shallower. The captain orders another ping from the sonar to try and locate the source of the noise. Sonar operator speaks up again, concerned. Sir, the ocean is getting deeper again. Captain asks him to repeat himself. Ocean floor is once again at expected depth, sir. Captain takes a look for himself and sure enough, they are no longer 10m above the ocean floor. There is also a very, very large dot on the screen behind the submarine. Captain asks what the large contact is. Sonar operator, equipment malfunction, sir. Captain pings again, just out of curiosity. The equipment malfunction has maintained its shape and is continuing to move away from the submarine, and apparently taking the strange noise with it. Again, this is basically an old wives tale amongst deep sea divers so take it with a grain of salt. It's possible that a submarine detected the carpet or whatever on sonar and that's the origin of the story, but I highly doubt this actually happened. Still makes for a cool story though. Last story for now, I'll see if I can dig up some more later. This is from the old guy I talked about earlier. Nice guy, marine biologist who has done both deep sea welts and nature research slash studies with ROVs. Apparently the carpet ate one of his ROVs on an expedition. According to him, it happened late one night while the rest of the crew was sleeping, he was pulling an all-nighter studying the sea life around volcanic vents. 
he's moving the ROV from one vent area to the next when he sees what he described as churning sediments on the seafloor, a giant moving cloud of underwater dust essentially moving towards the ROV. He moves in closer and sees what he describes as colossal echnoderm crawling along the seafloor, with long, dexterous filament probing the seafloor ahead of it. He maneuvers the ROV in for a closer look and uses the arm to prod one of the filaments. In the blink of an eye he lost contact with the ROV. Apparently it happened so fast he didn't even see it happen. One second the thing was about 5M away from the vehicle, the next second it had swallowed the thing whole. His excuse for not having footage was that the footage was all recorded and stored on the ROV rather than being recorded on the operating station which seems fishy to me. He was however, very confident in himself. To the extent he claims that he is the discoverer of this new species. He even gave it a name, which I completely forgot because it was so stupid and boring. Giant sea carpet sounds cooler anyway. If it's similar to a jellyfish and is actually a colony of microorganisms, then it might be related to the Portuguese man o' war. The way I've heard it described, it shares more similarities with a starfish or sea anemone than a jellyfish. The marine biologist guy who said he'd seen it had some interesting thoughts on what it was. His idea is that it's some sort of holdover slash descendant from the very first invertebrate forms of life on Earth. He did a whole long talk about how coral is one of the oldest forms of life on the planet. And the reason why the ocean is the only place teeming with large invertebrate creatures is because that's where all life first evolved. In his mind, jellyfish and all other sea invertebrates probably evolved from this thing rather than vice versa. This giant sea carpet or whatever would have been one of those very first life forms to ever exist on Earth, technically making it one of our ancient ancestors. It's a pretty cool theory, all things considered. This is the closest thing I could find to what previous post is describing. The one at 409 looks almost exactly like a very small version of what I've heard the black carpet is described as. I'm going to try and get in contact with the old biologist guy who saw the carpet and ask him some more questions. Way, way back in the mid-1980s I read in a book on cryptides that there was something called the hide. Apparently it was a flattish thing with eyes along the rim, about the size of a large cow hide, hence the name. From what I recall the one observation was of such a creature rising up out of an underwater trench to absorb a shark who'd somehow become paralyzed by it. It was observed at some distance by a diver. Does any of that ring a bell to anyone? supposedly took place somewhere off the Pacific coast of South America. I've heard some people who claim to have seen that thing or other similar things. A lot of stuff I've heard from other divers seems like they could be attributed to very rare large siponifers that live in the deep sea. What you're talking about was described to me as a sort of pancake-shaped creature that would hide under the sand with a single small near-transparent tentacle floating upwards. A diver touched it, spasmed and immediately the creature rose out of the sand to devour him. 
don't touch strange shit in the ocean, people. May as well go on a tangent and talk about some other stories I've heard that might be attributed to Sipophers. There was this one cranky old retired diver who swore he'd seen a sea monster of unfathomable size on a dive once. I always assumed he was full of shit but the way he described it sounds a lot like a Siponifer. The story went something like this, he was on a dive doing something that I'd forgotten when he sees an absolutely giant tentacle stretching up from the nearby drop off. The thing was so huge he couldn't see no beginning nor end to it and so now he goes around constantly claiming to have come within a hair breadth of devourment by a gargantuan sea leviathan of unfathomable proportion. And yes, that is exactly how he talked. Looking into these siponophers it makes total sense that something like this could exist. Though it would be less of a sea monster than a giant serpentine jelly blob sifting through plankton and floating nutrients. Another siponophore related story I've heard is one about an absolutely gargantuan jellyfish type creature that was allegedly about the size of a military submarine. The diver who saw it said the thing was so massive it had somehow developed its own biosphere with various species of fish circling around and swimming inside it. He'd describe it as having an appearance like a giant upside down orchid suspended underneath a massive sphere of translucent jelly. The coloration was very dull, but that might have just been due to the extreme depth. Thanks for sharing Anon. Whereabouts in the world did this story come from? I met the guy while I was working in the Hibernia oil field in 2009. Fun story, I refuse to do any oil rig work now because a lot of it is really sketchy and you end up having to pull a 10 plus hour shift while doing very delicate work deep underwater and I was afraid after that. Big Mexico oil spill that I'd fuck something up and cause a massive spill. So yeah, I don't do jobs like that anymore even though they pay really well. Ever seen a ghost underwater? Yes. Well to be more specific, I saw a hallucination of my dead father because the oxygen injector on my rebreather malfunctioned on a dive and gave me a bad case of narcosis. I was definitely hallucinating, but it really felt like him if that makes any sense. So I finally got hold of the old biologist guy on the phone and talked to him about the sea carpet again. According to him, it is not a siphonophore. He qualified that by saying that siphonophores are not fast or mobile. They survive by basically floating around expending very little energy and occasionally snagging a meal with the neurotoxin stinger tentacles. He talked for a while about what makes the carpet seemingly a biological impossibility. According to him, something of that size wouldn't get enough food slash energy to survive and keep up its level of activity just from scavenging sediments on the seabed. Siphonophores can get really, really huge because they sort of sit around and let food come to them without any energy expenditure. So the profile of the carpet fits more with an active predator slash scavenger than a passive one. I mentioned to him that I'd heard stories about decomposing corpses of whales being seen by some people being digested by the carpet, and he got really excited about that. 
His working theory is that the carpet is an entirely unknown form of life, in the sense that it is a colony organism similar to a siphonophore. But the individual cells are much more complex and capable than those of a siphonophore. Keep in mind this is purely theoretical stuff he's pulling out of his ass to try and explain why something that should be physically slash biologically impossible might exist. He studies siphonophores quite extensively, and one thing that's remains a mystery is how the cells communicate considering they have no central nervous system or brain to speak of. They're basically just big bacteria. The key apparently, is high frequency vibrations. He hasn't been able to prove it yet because it's damn hard to get your hands on a siphonophore to study. But he thinks the individual cells vibrate to communicate with one another and pass a message along the entire organism. His theory is that the carpet is basically the siphonophore equivalent of a Russian nesting doll. Rather than being a colony of individual cells, it is a colony of individual multicellular siphonophores and is therefore the missing link between single cellid life and complex multicellular life. The bloop noise which the carpet apparently makes is actually millions of these creatures communicating in their own primitive language. Since siphonophores can reproduce asexually, he envisions the carpet as constantly evolving in size and shape depending on the environment and amount of food it can consume. So perhaps after consuming the carcass of a very large creature like a whale or a giant squid it would be extremely large and have a large amount of cells. But would eventually shrink as itself consumed unneeded cells. The multicellular structure of the carpet serves a twofold purpose, both serving as a distraction from potential predators similar to a lizard losing its tail while running away. And a long-term storage of nutrients. Since big meals are few and far between at the bottom of the ocean, the carpet stores the energy it consumes by creating more cells and growing larger, which it will consume between meals whenever it needs energy. Not just that, but he's very convinced that the very first forms of life on Earth evolved in the deep ocean near volcanic vents, making the carpet the oldest existing form of life on the planet by far. He talked my ear off for a while but I don't have much more interesting to tell you guys other than this for now. Though I feel that even though this is slash x slash and people come here to hear about supernatural slash weird stories and shit this is just the hypothesis of one guy who apparently saw the carpet once. It's by no means the definitive truth and this guy hasn't ever actually been able to perform a real scientific study on it. He just saw it once and is drawing conclusions from what little knowledge he has. Holy shit you guys are all a bunch of absolute fucking retards. Yes the thread is interesting and this carpet thing is an interesting concept. But for you people to actually believe this you must all be a load of blithering idiots. Her ocean eyes unexplored. Der. New species are a certainty DEE. -E. You idiots, you just look at spooky images of spooky ocean art and then decide that there must be things like this lurking around, without realizing how absolutely stupid that is. None of you know shit about the ocean or how ecosystems work, you're just looking at evocative images and then drawing stupid, unfounded conclusions because you're low IQ. Fuck all of you. Retards.
Georgia Swamps exercise. I have a short one that is relevant to a lot of the stories which are going around. This is copy pasted from the other thread but I'm finishing it here. Be Butterbar Platoon Leader for CAV Platoon. Be at National Training Center at Fort Benning. Be in a woods for fire training exercise, FTX. The FTX is about four days long and involves a lot of land NAV shit, patrol bases, etc. So far has been pretty boring. At about 1,800 on third day get a call from the company commander over the radio. He's pulling the platoon leaders in to talk to us. Show up at company TOC, basically coast truck, a camp stove, and pallets of MRES. Wait forever for company commander to show up. Finally shows up at quarter to nine and tells me and the rest of the platoon leaders that there's been reports of a really big, aggressive bear that's been following groups around at the NTC. If it shows up fire shots to scare it off, don't bury your trash, etc. I don't think much of it at the time just think we got all our time wasted for no reason. Sends us off to head back to our PLTS on our own. Cloudy so it's pretty much pitch dark out, kind of creepy naving back by myself but I'm in full warrior mode so I do it without thinking. Up for patrolling so I leave my flashlight off. Following trail back to rendezvous point with my platoon where they were supposed to have set up a patrol base. See headlights off in the distance on the trail, get off the trail and hide. Watch the Humvee pass by, looks just like range control or something. See its lights fall on something huge across the road for an instant before the Humvee rolls on. Tactically shit pants for a second, sit in utter silence for a few minutes thinking it might be a bear. Nothing, no movement. After a while I realize I'm probably just being a tard and get back on the trail to keep going. Nothing more out of the ordinary happens, get to around the point where the PB should be and notice a chain of chem lights heading off into the woods as well as a parked Humvee. Head into woods, following chem light chain. Get to the end of the chem light chain. Someone calls out the challenge, when you set up a patrol base, if you see someone you call out a challenge phrase and they answer back with the password, it means they're friendly. I don't remember what the password was so I just say it's fucking Lieutenant Anon. Guy just goes at whatever and lets me by. I get to the center of the patrol base and link up with my platoon sergeant. About an hour goes by, I feel weirdly tense, can't sleep. Suddenly shouting from one side of the patrol base immediately followed by hail of blank fire as whole squad lights up an area. Grab my rifle and run over shouting for a status from the squad leader. No response yet. No one moving or talking. Run up to one of the sentries and ask what the hell happened. He said he saw someone moving about 10 meters away from their position and called out the challenge. He said they heard someone say quote, it's fucking Lieutenant Anon. So they were going to let him through. Guy says the thing suddenly got close and he had this feeling something was wrong. Sees that this person walking into the base has long hair and just starts shooting. 
whole squad started shooting. If you've ever shot blanks at night you know it blinds you for a few seconds during and afterward. When the guy can see again the guy he saw was gone. WTF for a bit but say okay and head back to the center of the patrol base. Much later. Talk to the platoon sergeant and RTO, make sure they're okay, and go to sleep for a bit. Woken up by another hail of blank fire. Figure this time we're getting probed by a four, grab rifle, and run to the side of the PB where the fire came from. I get there, almost no one moving or talking, ask WTF is going on. Team leader says he saw someone a little bit down the hill they were watching so he issued challenge. Guy calls back, quote, it's fucking Lieutenant Anon. While he's walking toward the PB. Team leader asks what the hell I'm doing out there. Voice calls back, quote, it's fucking Lieutenant Anon. Team Leader WTFS Team Leader says something way taller than a normal man comes out of the brush, he tactically shits his pants and just starts lighting it up. Again guy is gone when he can see clearly again where it was. Think this is kinda fucked up for a 4 to be playing head games with us like this. I go back to the center of the PB and try to get to sleep again. This time I sleep for maybe 15 minutes before I'm woken up by for real up for big gun battle going on. Jump to my feet actually happy shits hitting the fan for real. Conductor react to contact, drive up for off, lane walker starts popping RD sims. SLS slash PSG slash RTO start executing according to our plan we set up to move PBS. We move about a click and set up the ORP then move into the new PB. Walking around checking positions and making sure SLS are accounting for people. Good accountability with 3 SLS, go to talk to the last one. Last SL comes up to me just chitting bricks. I ask if he's missing anyone or any gear. He says he counted twice and each time counted an extra person, when he went back to ask if the guy was in the wrong squad he wasn't there anymore. What? Pull SLS in, ask them if they were missing anyone or had anyone extra. Nothing wrong with anyone else. Figure it's just a screw up with accountability. After an hour it's okay to return to normal sleep rotations. Make plans with platoon sergeant slash SLS. I go to sleep. Woken up about an hour later by SL who sogged for the time period. He tells me I need to come talk to some guy who's freaking out. Go over to where the platoon sergeant is, he's with some Joe who's freaking out. Ask him what the hell happened. Said he was on the line with team leader who I'd talked to before. Got up to go out a bit to take a piss. Mid piss he looks over to his left down a short hill. Sees someone walking down there. Mumbles to himself. Oh shit. Person down there fucking cackles, his words. And he nearly pisses all over himself grabbing his rifle. He says it looked like it was made of sticks, his words. And ran like a speed skater, his words again. Toward him. Cackled something like Lieutenant Anon while it ran up the hill. 
M fucking FW. Guy runs for his life back to the PB and will not go back out on the line, he demands we bring the whole platoon back to the TOC. We eventually talk him down, things quiet down. Last incident of the night thankfully. I talked to the lane walker about it while no one else was around and he just said he believed the dude and that a lot of weird shit lives in the GA swamps. I guess it's kind of a crappy ending but to this day I am not sure what the fuck might have happened. These stories reminded me of it. At the time I thought it was just hallucinations plus a four, but now I'm not so sure. My father have a few stories, this one is what I recall most accurately for now. This story is from my father who fought in the Vietnam War as a squad leader, not sure how to translate his rank but he had 12 soldiers under him as an officer who graduated from an academy. By that time, half his soldiers are barely men, just kids drafted into the war as replacement for those who have fallen. 1975 the South Vietnamese president and many generals took all their money and fled to France. All the troops knew that they have been deceived by the politicians and gave up fighting and fled back to their homes. My father was in the jungles not rang at that moment and knew that the war was lost. He assembled his men one last time to warn them of what to come. Burn all your uniforms, insignias pictures, anything you have that may identify you as South Vietnamese soldiers. Blend in with the fleeing refugees. Not all of his men came from Saigon, so they split up and flee separately. Only one, kid who consider my father his Sukfu or master, came along with him to head to Saigon. During the third night of their escape, they came upon a small friendly South Vietnamese JROTC army camp in the dead of night in middle of the jungle. It was the junior the officer reserve training corporate with their trademarked red berets. There was a few watchers awake and everyone else is lying on the ground around the campfire apparently sleeping. The kid officer there, barely looked 17, asked for their ammo, weapons, food, anything they can use to continue the fight. The kid also asked my father to remain and help them fight in their eternal struggle. Despite my father's best efforts to dissuade them from throwing their life away, they said to him it is already too late. The seriousness of these words is lost in translation. The kid rebuffed my father and called him a coward and curses him to be quote, Totally crushed, no bones left for your children to weep over. May spirits of your dead comrades and people curse you and no longer offer you their protecting in the dark. My father gave up, gave him everything he had, and went to sleep since they had been doing nothing but running away. As an experienced jungle fighter, my father never fully sleep and always have his ears open. Lest you want the Viet Cong to slit your throat.
he swore that he could hear the kids wake up and stir about normally around their camp with pot and pans. He and his buddy woke up and found themselves surrounded by corpses, including the body of the kid he talked to last night. It also seems like they died a while ago, rotting corpses and all, the smell was immediately noticeable. Thinking it was just a Viet Cong night attack, he had no choice but move onward home. Feeling that the North Vietnamese are getting too close, they doubled their pace and travels at night and as light as possible. They tried the main road and found that it was congested with civilians and made a killing field for North Vietnamese artillery. Not to mention the looting and stealing of gold, jewelry, and other crap by other soldiers deserting the front lines. Thus he decides to stay in the jungle roads. He recalled that at around 3 a.m. they happened upon a blind bend on a road in the jungle and crosses it. At that moment, a bus came roaring and stampeding towards them in total darkness like a large shadowy monster and my father quickly dived out of the way. His buddy was not so lucky and was ran over. He died instantly as the bus chewed up his body under the wheel. While weeping for his friend my father dragged his mangled body piece by piece to his side of the road. He said that at that moment, the insects silenced, the rustling of the leaves failed, the moon stopped dead in the sky. Then he heard laughter of children, men, and women echoing, rebounding, and resonating from jungle mocking him. He fired at the sound with his 1911 emptying it, screaming. Have I not fought enough for you people? Take me and not him. He's too young. Take me instead. Take me. The laughters replied with complete silence. He dug a shallow grave and make a crude tombstone to make a landmark so that one day he may come back and properly lay his friend to rest. In the end, only my father made it back alive. Twelve of his comrades died. To this day, he could never find his friend's final resting place. Not a ghost story purse, but I'll repost what I posted in the spooky green text thread since it has lost steam and I want to hear other Anant's opinions on what could have happened. B21, best friend just got his permanent driver's license and wants to use his car to go camping in the Alps in the south of France. It's me and two friends including the one with the car. We're thinking we can drive from Belgium all the way to the south of France in one day, so we leave in the morning. After hours of driving and a lot of stress for my best buddy, he's the only one who could drive, we decide to camp out in the middle of bumfuck nowhere since it's getting dark. This is somewhere in the south of France, no idea where exactly, but it was all small roads and forest all around us, with no lights, not even street lights. We find a clearing on the side of the road, parked there take our camping shit out of the trunk and head into the woods to find a suitable place to place our tent. 
At this point the sun is almost gone and the forest is really dense, but luckily we find a clearing and quickly make a fire and set up our tent. We boil some water over the campfire in our pot and eat our instant noodles, smoke a cigarette, piss out the fire and get in the cramped tent to go to sleep. This is a small tent so it had us lying in there shoulder to shoulder, all three of us next to each other, with me on the left side. It's a full moon so there's some of that light shining through the canopy of trees onto the front of our tent. I'm an insomniac so I was probably lying there with my eyes closed for about half an hour, when a light source to the left of me caught my attention through my closed eyelids. I open my eyes, look to my left and I see what looks like a flashlight in the distance, about 100 meters away, shining right onto our tent. I figure it's a forest ranger coming to tell us we can't camp here or some shit, so I whisper to the other guys and ask if they're awake. They are, and they see the light too. We're discussing what to say to the guy when he inevitable tells us off, and we decide our bilingual Dutch slash French speaking friend is to handle it since me and my buddy can't speak French for shit. All the while this light is coming closer. At a certain distance, I would say about 20 meters away from the tent, keep in mind it's hard to gauge distance of an outside light source when inside a tent in a pitch black forest. Except for the moonlight. The light just suddenly goes out completely. All of us shut the fuck up for a while but we hear nothing, literally dead silent environment. After about 30 seconds I break the silence and ask the guys what the fuck that light was, of course, they didn't know either. Remember earlier I said the moon was shining on the front of our tent? Well, I look to the front of the tent and I see a fucking shadowy figure standing literally right in front of our tent, its silhouette cast by the moonlight. From the angle we were in you could clearly make out a torso, long arms to the side, and about half of the length of its legs, but the head wasn't projected on the tent. Internally I'm freaking the fuck out at this point so I grab my puny ass Swiss army knife and look over to the guys, they see it too. My bilingual friend starts saying shit in French to this figure. Allo, qui es-tu? Stuck to that effect. No answer. This figure is just standing there with its long arms by its side, motionless. At this point I'm convinced some fucking lunatic is ready to murder or rape us and my survival instinct takes over, so I open the Swiss knife. Silently grab the zipper and then as quickly as I could I opened the tent and just jumped out to try to tackle this person to the ground in one fell swoop. I jumped out and... There is nothing there. Nothing at all. Me and my friends look around the tent, we shine our flashlight behind the closest trees, nothing. Now this is what makes it extra freaky. It was the middle of a dry summer and the forest floor was littered with dry ass sticks and leaves. No fucking way anyone could step over to our tent without making a single sound, man, nor animal, let alone nope out of there in the split second it took me to open the tent. This thing, whatever it was, somehow was able to sneak up to the front of our tent without stepping on the fucking floor. To rule out pareidolia I went back in the tent, closed it up and looked to see if the figure we saw was somehow a figment of our imagination caused by clouds passing by the moon or trees or whatever. 
there were no shadows in front of our tent at all anymore. My bilingual friend took a scare shit behind the closest tree and then we noped the fuck out of the forest to sleep in the car that night. We just left the tent in the forest and came back to pick it up the morning after. Rest of the trip was uneventful. Anyone have any idea what we witnessed that night? I've googled cryptids from France but nothing came up that matched what we saw that night. If any one of you has any ideas, please let me know. This is by far the creepiest shit me and my friends ever witnessed and it's a complete mystery. Spooky stuff, do you know anything about the woods you guys were camping in? Maybe there were prior suicides or maybe murders in the area. Possibly someone still lost after their death. Unfortunately, I don't know the location we were in. It was somewhere in a desolate wooded area in the south of France but that's all I know. You're thinking ghosts? But how does that explain the light? Here's one my father has told people every time someone brings up demons or paranormal activity. Rural area in Maine. There's an old abandoned house a field away from a back road outside of town. Sometimes you can see it from the road. Sometimes it's not there at all. One night when my father was in his 20s, him and a couple of his friends went to explore the house and see if any of the rumors were true. The house was supposedly cursed with black magic. Town officials hold seances in the basement and sacrifice animals and people in an attempt to gain dark power and summon demons. It being invisible sometimes is also a rumor. It's there. Doesn't seem magical from a distance. As my father and his three friends start walking up the porch, my father is filled with a flight or fight response that unnerves him deeply. Guys, what if there's hobo junkies or a predator animal? We gotta at least open the front door. Man, don't be a pussy. One of my father's friends, Dan, is leading the four of them. As he creaks open the door, he winces in disgust. Oh man, it smells horrible in here. As they gather in the entry room, my father smells it too. It smells like a rotting corpse, something he had experienced in the woods when he was younger. Dead deer. His spidey senses are going fucking nuts. Guys, we should just leave. This doesn't feel right. Relax, man, it's probably a dead raccoon or something. My father notices there is random chicken wire all over the house at first glance. 
like some critter used to live in the house and the chicken wire kept it from going where the owner didn't want it to. But it's set up tall. Human height. One of the guys says, What the fuck is with this fencing shit? The same dread my father has been feeling suddenly hits the group. Something is rustling and moving upstairs. Dan says, Fuck it, let's go see what that is, then we'll leave. The staircase is at the center of the building with walls on both sides. All anyone can see upstairs is off-white wall with some water stains. Dan starts going first. My father is in last place at the bottom of the stairs. He looks towards the kitchen and notices some of the chicken wire has long black hair on it. Too long to be any animal he's heard of. He looks back to the stairs as Dan is finally reaching the top. Dan, the courageous tough guy, peeks to the left and stops in his tracks. He turns around white as a ghost. He's hyperventilating and starting to cry. We. Need. To. Everyone starts running for their lives before he can even finish his sentence. My father is the first one out of the building and as the others follow Dan starts shouting. Run 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 get back to the fucking car. As they pile in and leave in a panic Dan is now crying like a baby. What the fuck did you see man? Now trying to choke back tears in a state severe post-trauma distress, Dan starts struggling to describe. It was like a fucking pig, man. A giant fucking pig. What the fuck? He snaps a bit. But it was a dude. Walking like a person with hair and shit. He starts really sobbing and breaks down a bit. It's fucking eyes, man. It was like stealing my soul. It had no fucking eyes. He just keeps crying like a baby as everyone sits in bewilderment. They never speak of it again. Too terrified of what is even happening at the house. My father says years later Dan killed himself after a long downward spiral that started that day. As if it really did steal his soul. He can't sit through any media related to pigs or demons without feeling deeply unnerved like when he first started walking up to the house. I have the body of a pig utterly terrifies him as well. He refuses to ever watch it again. Jesus fucking Christ best stories so far, any idea exactly what rural area of Maine? Somerset County. Somewhere in the woods between Skowgan, Madison, and Norwichwak. My father intentionally refuses to tell anyone exactly where it is out of fear that he may be sending someone to their death, whether it be through a demon, or people crazy enough to fake a demon. Route 201 in Skowgan has a road sign facing east, advocating the local municipality that's just a straight-up inverted pentagram. For a symbol with wholesome pictures in each point so the satanic cult theory might be true. I can't find any pictures of it online but I'm sure you can find it in road view in Google Maps. I have seen it with my own two eyes as well and thinking about it makes my stomach turn. The people and leadership in Somerset County are so psychotic and selfishly ego-stroking that I have half a mind to say it really is cursed with satanic magic. Everybody in Maine hates Skowgan and the surrounding area as well. 
It's fucked in a way that can only be understood by living there. out near Texarkana. Parents have farm with a few cows, horses, and too many chickens to count. Farm sits on the boundary between woods and plains. Trees are sparse but picking up like crazy toward back of property. Parents gone to Corpus Christi for vacation, so of course I have to take care of all the animals. Tack the heat wave passing through onto that, and it's basically constant care making sure they're watered. My favorite.OGG closest friends are out of town for the week. Farm is about 20 miles outside city limits, so I can rule getting my dick wet out of the roster of activities. Split time up between feeding aminals and siding in my new SIG 556 I got for graduation. Wake up one morning, one of our older horses had died. She had plenty of water, but the heat must have just been too much for her. Poor girl. I phone dad. He tells me to go to neighbor Frank a few miles down the road. He has a backhoe. Go to Frank. Tell him my situation. He follows me back home with the thing and fills me in on how to operate. Not too different from a tractor so I'm set. Tells me he'll be back the next morning for the backhoe. Set to work digging Empress grave. Fill it in. Offer a moment of silence shed a manly tear. Suddenly inspiration dot wave. Turn the backhoe back on and chug a lug to the back of the property. 30 plus acres and not a single berm for shooting. Madness. Don't bother telling parents because they wouldn't give a fuck. Start digging a berm, leave the trench forest side. Suddenly smell this dank, shitty odor. Panic and think I hit a sewer line. I'm gonna get it Dotchev. Hop down out of cab and search the trench for busted pipe, none to be found. Suddenly feel uneasy, feeling of being watched. Scan tree lean and surrounding field. Zip. Chalk it up to dead horse and residual guilt, but still tactically back to back home. Glad I left heat running dot text. Chug a luck back to farm, turn it off and head inside. Get up early next morning, make a big country breakfast and go out to feed some motherfucking critters. Go out to do the horse's routine, but with one less chunk of hay on the wheelbarrow. Sadface.png Suddenly wapped a most unpleasant vapor. That smelly smell from yesterday, mixed with rot. Head out on a hunch to where I buried Empress. Stagger and nearly puke. 
The grave's been robbed. Her head has been placed, emphasis on placed, upright near a large-ish hole in the ground. Tongue has been ripped out, eyelids gone, and eyes been popped, her cheeks and neck look chewed on. Maggots crawling around the wounds. Vitreous humor dry and crusty running down one cheek. Seen dead animals and scavenging before, this trumps all in my book. Plus, I love that horse so this is disturbing on a number of levels. Hear squealing sound behind me, break my shorts. It's neighbor Frank. He asks why I look so pale, tell him coyotes dug up the horse. Bullshit. I dug that grave at least seven feet deep. He nods and leaves with backhoe. I play car shuffle again to get him back to his truck. Get home, carefully tip Empress head back down the grave with a shovel and rebury her. Go into garage, slop some coyote urine around grave to keep the fuckers away, it pays to have a family as into hunting as mine. Fast forward to that afternoon. Head out on four-wheeler with a few targets, my sick, and my moist nugget, trashy. Yes cheap. Also yes, for a little side calibration. Go to set up targets, realize I didn't bring anything to actually set them up on. Punch self. Go into trees to grab some sticks. As I approach, get the same feeling as the day before. Go into trees, grab some suitable sticks, and do the nope scoot back to my side. Whittle sticks into stakes, makeshift a few targets into side of berm, get my SIG calibrated to within acceptable parameters and operate on the clean target for a few minutes with the nugget. After a while, realize it's getting dark. Decide to take targets and shit down, clean up my brass and head back. Leave no trace BSA. As I'm taking the targets down, the afternoon breeze shifts and suddenly stank. Hear movement from other side of berm and nearly nope a small but sturdy wall in my pants. Decide not to be a pussy, grab my sick and climb the berm to have a little peek. See medium sized black shape huddled down in the trench. Aren't you cute.jpg? Figure it's a black bear cup or something, they're more common than most folks realize, and back away slowly in case mom is nearby. Clumsy ham hand accidentally a shower of dirt onto the cup. It looks up at me. That's no cup.mp4. Let me just say that while I'm not the original badass, creepy or spooky images and shit don't frighten me that easily. Shit, when I was little one of my favorite pets was delightful, an older Welsh pony with no eyes, her eye holes were, in fact, sewn over and sunken in. She made one of my friends cry just by looking at him. That being said, this thing was on a completely other level, spectrum, and set of physics from that sweet old pony. Best way I can describe it is comparing it to pig-related, jaw was a bit thinner, eyes were beadier and darker, and the nose was more sunken back, but the rest of the details are pretty close. Same drooly mouth, same slack-jawed grin, same snarkly-ass teeth. At this point, my brain made an executive order to re-examine my previous decisions. Fuck the targets, fuck the brass, fuck the scouts, 
fuck not being a pussy, and fuck slow going. I tactically back to the ATV, spent 0.000001 of a second making sure my guns are stowed securely and gun that shit back to the garage. Once inside with a good 8 acres between me and the fuck beast of Pelosidar I realize that I have a sworn duty to protect my farm. I already let one of my charges die under my watch. It's time to nut up or shut up. Q-arming sequence Avi. Grab my dad's tack vest, have to cinch it a little tight, and his Night Owl 5X, load up with 320 RDAR 15 mags loaded with 5.56 NATO. Slap the third into my SIG and sling my new gun over my shoulder. My nugget takes mags, so I put one in with five to spear on my vest and shouldered that bad boy. Fuck me, I even slipped a knife into my boot. There are floodlights strung up about the farm for entertaining or night work, switches are in the garage and balcony. Go for high ground.jpg. I tactically threw the house to the balcony and get ready for war. Not a moment too soon, start hearing squawks and gurgles and, I still get the jiblies to this day, laughter coming from the chicken pen. Fuck this. I slam every switch and light up the farmyard like Rockefeller Square on Christmas. There it is, standing in the pen like pig related. Its body was shaped like a fucking kush ball, all matte black fur. Arms and legs were thin, but looked powerful and wiry. It was holding one of the hens with its head torn off, and staring straight at me. It was obviously a male of whatever the fuck species it was, and there was fucking blood hanging off its shitty beast cock. I unslung my sick and mag dumped, not worrying about hitting anything, trying to hit that black cotton ball on stilts. I remember thinking I hope I blow your shitty cock off, you piece of slime, yes, the words my brain used were piece of slime. I scored at least 5 or 6 good THWUCKs, my target being only about 50 yards downrange. It never moved the entire time, puffs of fur flying off of it. I ejected the mag, slapped a new one in, and took aim again. I'll never forget the look it gave me, framed by that green sight. It almost said, Are you done? I squeezed off a final shot at its fucking mouth. I hit it. I fucking know I hit it. I remember it almost in slow motion, the puff of fucking saliva and shit as my 5.56 NATO round introduced itself to its face at 3000 feet slash s. The thing started wheezing. Like a rusty gate being swung back and forth, that kind of sound. It dropped the hen and stepped over the chicken fence. I swear to fuck that this thing has either retractable legs, or its body is mostly puffy fur, because when it stepped over the fence, that leg almost disappeared. I wasn't gonna let it run away. Mag dump 2, the redumpening. I didn't score any hits though. Once it was over that fence, it dropped to all fours and scuttled off like some giant spider back to the crack in Satan's couch, all while wheezing that noise. I stayed up all that night, waiting for it to come back. Fed the animals with my sick over my shoulder, went to sleep, 
repeated the process until my parents came home. Never saw the chicken fucking shit weasel again. Hi slash x slash slash k slash here. I just woke up about an hour ago and I just had a dream that fucking Jared me shitless. I know you guys have dream threads sometimes so here you go. Be me in my dream. Outside in backyard of my house with my dogs. My parents come outside yelling at me to come in. Rush inside with doggos and ask what's the matter. They tell me to look at the news. Reports of lights in the sky are being seen all over the world. Anywhere the lights show up people disappear. So far the entire continents of South America and Australia are silent where the lights apparently started, and they're being seen in Mexico going north and going west over Russia. News plays footage that was taken at ground zero that they found of people being sucked up into the sky in major cities by the lights that got posted on the internet before the sites went dark. Parents talking about how we need to board up the windows with wood or something. Suddenly, screams from outside. I go full SHTF mode and get in my body armor and helmet and grab my shoddy and rafu. Parents <coughs> and pets vocally yelling or barking at something outside. Can also hear screams in the distance all across the neighborhood. There is a bright and intense oscillating light outside the windows of my room. I have the curtains closed and it's still blindingly bright. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Suddenly can't hear parents and doggos or the screams from the neighborhood anymore. Just the lights oscillating. Level 5 tactically shit tendies out my ass mode kicks in and I dive into my closet and lock the door and bar it shut with random junk in it. Look at the crack underneath the door. Light is incredibly intense. I hear my windows burst open and hear shit get randomly tossed around my room. There is a loud fucking mechanical whirring noise, also faint but distant screams as well. What the fuck is happening dot bad. Eventually the whirring noise and the lights stop. It's completely dead quiet outside. I wait in my closet with my guns for what feels like hours in the dream. I've turned my closet light off because I feel like I'm being watched. Sitting in the pitch black just waiting for something to happen. I hear footsteps outside. Clearly bipedal footsteps, one foot going after the other, but something is off. They don't sound like human footsteps, they sound very long and stilted almost. Start to hear soft noises as well. Small clicks or groans occasionally a high squeal. 
Your back door to my house open up in the distance. Oh fuck oh shit dot wave. The clicking and stilted walking is in my house now. Hear a cup or plate fall and break in the kitchen. Silence again. Suddenly the stilted walking gets faster. Finger on the trigger waiting for something to break down my closet door and kill me. Hear the front door to my room burst open. Silence. The clicking starts again, softer though. It leaves, whatever it was. Lights come back, but there is no sound or whirring. Suddenly hear a woman scream and protest and call for help. Final scream is cut short by a mechanical buzz and click. No. Suddenly hear regular footsteps in my house. Hello. It's the woman from outside. It's safe now. Everything is fine. Please come out. Your family is waiting for you. Don't buy it for a second. Please. Come out. It's a paradise out there. Everything is taken care of for us now. What the utter fuck? Come out. Please. The last please is cut off by the mechanical whirling from outside and lights again. Come out. Don't you want to be with your friends? It stays like this for a while before the whirling and noise stops and the woman leaves, headed back outside without another word. Out of sheer curiosity I peek outside my closet door. Nothing there, room is a complete mess, front door is open, all of my shit has been strewn everywhere. Take a quick look outside at my backyard from my window. Fatal mistake. There is a woman with short black hair outside, she has what looks like a big metal collar around her neck. Some tall dude is right next, wait that's not a dude, oh god what is that? Whatever it is it snaps its head right at me. It emits a deafening shriek. Fuck 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 fuck. Lights start again, three more tall dudes come from the light above can't make out any identifiable features. Fucking sprint as fast as I can through my house and out my front door. Can hear the stilted feet in the distance too. Grab my car keys and run for my car. Get in, car won't start, battery won't even function. Get out and start to run. The tall dudes are behind me. Tall, pale, and big eyes, can't make out much more than that. Start running backwards down the street away from them, angrily fire my rifle at one. Blue bubble reacts and forms around it, like a liquid, it's unfazed. Mag dump the son of a bitch. Nothing. Bring out shoddy. Mag dump again. The liquid that blocked the bullets appears to run out, but liquid from the others rushes out and creates a big blue shield in front of all of them. Suddenly a fourth tall dude jumps out from the trees to my left and flanks me. Tackles me to the ground. I'm screaming. My weapons are taken and I'm stripped down of my body armor to my clothes. The light is directly overhead. The whirring starts again. Me and the four tall dudes are sucked up into the air. At the center of the light is the woman. She's saying how exited she is to see me and how we're all gonna be happy. The lights blind me. I wake up in a cold sweat.
from an outdoor hunting website that had a creepy experiences thread. On the trip in question, I decided to hike the old Malala Indian trail that followed the ridge tops from Saddle Blanket Mountain to Oak Ridge, one of the Native Americans' favorite summer camps and trading centers. It was a beautiful August day, two days into the hike, I expected to be gone about two weeks, when literally out of the blue the most terrifying thing that ever happened to me in my life occurred. It would change my perspective of reality forever. I was walking along the trail enjoying the strong breeze and bright sunshine when, in the middle of a step, everything around me started to turn gray and blurry. The only way I can describe it was as if suddenly I was looking through someone else's prescription sunglasses. I finished the step and started another. Every inch I moved forward the darkness increased and the gray blurring turned into a jumble of shapes that made no sense. I then seemed to pass a barrier and everything started to return back into focus when my foot reached the ground on the second step everything around me had changed. Day had turned into night and there was no wind. All the Douglas fir and pine trees had been replaced with thick jungle-like growth. The cool thin mountain air was replaced with humid thick air. There were no stars in the sky, but there was a diffused light that let me see everything clearly, however I couldn't tell what the light source was. As often happens when the human body receives a massive dose of adrenaline the entire incident appeared like it was in slow motion and even though I was only there for a second or two I had time to observe my surroundings. The silence was broken by continuous high-pitched keening sound, and I was nearly overwhelmed with a sense of fear and danger. My momentum caused me to take one more step before stopping in my tracks. It was at this point, I heard a whispered, Gotcha! Over my right shoulder. I couldn't tell if I heard it with my ears or inside my head. The word wasn't directed at me but something said the word quietly to itself. I was so terrified I actually felt my heart stop for a moment. That whispered word is what saved me. I opened my mouth and gasped in a huge gush of thick air and recoiled backward in the same footsteps I had entered wherever I was. As I threw myself backward, I looked over my right shoulder. A dark-colored hairy right hand and arm was reaching for my throat over my shoulder. The hand had pale ivory spade-shaped fingernails. The nails looked clean and almost had a manicured look to them. The thumb was placed lower, towards the wrist, on the hand than a human's is. Both hand and arm were thin and powerful looking and both were covered with thick coarse black hair. I got a good look at it because the thumbnail grazed my neck, it did not break the skin, as I moved backwards. As I continued backwards, the hand clutched where my neck had been a split second before and it seemed to fade off into the distance as I returned through the portal. I took two more steps backwards and everything reversed itself from what had just happened. The world around me became lighter, the fir and pines gradually came back into view and by the third step I was back on Saddle Blanket Mountain. I continued to move backwards in terror, and as I did, I observed that where I had just come from was a shimmering oval patch of air about the size of a large door. The woods behind it looked like it was underwater. By the fifth backward step the shimmering area seemed to just evaporate and everything was back to normal. 
by then my lungs had nearly burst from the volume of air I had inhaled during the huge gasp I had just taken. My body felt like it was on fire from the adrenaline surge. I spun around and ran back down the trail as fast as my legs could carry me, and didn't stop until I reached my truck. I was nearly two days getting to that place and about three hours getting back. On my way home I was absolutely horrified at the thought of what would happen if I were to drive my truck into something like that. It had been a trap pure and simple. Whatever it was that tried to kill me somehow kept the portal hidden from me on the way in, and I didn't actually see it until I was back out again. I had terrible nightmares for years, and still haven't come to grips with what happened. My fingers are trembling and the hair is standing up on the nape of my neck as I write this. Severely shaken, I've read everything I could get my hands on about people who have mysteriously disappeared throughout history. And discovered several instances where people have vanished in plain sight of others. The quantum physics people have a theory about parallel universes. They just might be right. Since I originally wrote this, Report number 9202 from Sutter County, California was submitted to the BFRO. The person who submitted the report drew a picture of a creature he saw in a tree. The right hand in the picture is exactly the same as the one I saw. Note the thumb placement and the forearm of the left arm is exactly like the forearm of the creature that attacked me. Any way you could post the pic from that thread? Very cool story though really lines up with my own theories. There was no picture, the thread was over 100 pages long but it was an older forum style that didn't have support for pics. Here's the thread, damn good read. Here's the pic the passage refers to, it's hosted on a different website, not on that actual thread. in the gas industry as a geologist. From 2007 to 2009, I was on a contract with a Russian company called North Gas, back when industrial relations with the UK were still fairly cordial. There was lots of potential gas sites in this Siberian region far up north, and I used to go around potential sites with company borehole engineers, usually in groups of two to three. Anyway, I was at one site in northern Siberia with a German engineer in late October of 2008. Took ages to get to and completely devoid of human habitation, but really beautiful taiga. Endless forests on the drive up there. You drove a van through taiga? Yeah, I'm not a car nut, but it was some modified jeep that the engineer guy would just not shut the fuck up about all the way from Nwayobrsk. Anyway, the site we went to survey was fairly typical of what you expect in the industry at these sorts of locations, 
and topsoil giving way to permeable siltstone. Excellent locations for surveying. Now to the story. We came to a location where satellite imagery was suggesting that permafrost was retreating. It still fucking snows and ices over, of course, but the key point is is that it's not entirely frozen over. You can install stuff during the summer months, get gas production up. It was a pretty boring landscape though, very thin topsoil giving way rapidly to permeable siltstone. Lots of these natural holes all over the place too, permafrost plugs that had melted and left 20 to 30 m deep holes dotted all over the place. We decided to stay a few weeks and do some test surveys. First week was completely fine, got some good locations, things progressing smoothly. By the end of that week though, things were getting a little weird. Every time I would go out with the spectrometer after that first week, I'd occasionally hear some noises from the holes. I was never near them because while you get a lot of gas coming off these things, they're not terribly good for industrial drilling. It was faint, just on the border of hearing. I never knew how to describe those noises until a few years later when someone took me out to a jazz bar and some guy was playing a violin-like instrument that made this drone noise. Disconcerting, makes your hair stand up. My colleague would notice this too. Disconcerting, as in this job, you're not really working together, but apart. So two of us were hearing stuff out there. We were both rational people, at the time for me, at least, so we put it down to cave noises. Laugh, forget it. About 10 days into the survey, it started happening at night. Again, faint, but really ominous. That drone noise. We used to sleep in the back of the van we had brought, but even though those doors we heard it. Again, stop being stupid, it's cave noises, laugh, have a few beers, go to sleep. It got worse from there. The day after, I found some slime stuff around one of the permafrost boreholes. Yeah, you get lichens and mosses around these things, not an issue, but this was like, petroleum jelly, that really vicious stuff. I touched it and immediately regretted it, it felt a lot like pork belly fat. It was warm too, which was really disturbing, considering it was minus 5 Celsius, for you a merry fucks. During the day out there, bring round the German engineer to take a look, he looks troubled. For the rest of the day, I was constantly on edge, too. I kept looking back at the borehole too, just to check I kept saying to myself. Things got worse at night. That drone noise got a lot worse, but it felt, and I know that's a shit way of putting it, like it wasn't from below, but above, on the surface. My German engineer tried to laugh it off but I could tell he, was seriously disturbed by it. Just that low droning noise. Eventually, we get to sleep. God knows how many hours later though, we wake up together because there is definitely something attempting to open the door handle to the passenger seat of the van. And now, that drone is right fucking outside, and it sounds a lot like gurgling. 
At this point, we both freak the fuck out and scream like a pair of little girls. It stops. We don't sleep for the rest of the night, and it doesn't come back. The next day, as soon as we make it 9 a.m., we cautiously open the doors. The entire back door is covered in this pork fat shit. The place reeks of something rotten too. The passenger door just smeared in that stuff. But the thing that made us immediately go fuck it, we're leaving was the passenger window, which was also smeared in this gunk, had an outline on it. Like something had pressed its skull into the fat stuff and left an outline. It was unmistakable some elongated human skull, with no eye orbitals. Jelly stuff was all over the area around us too, and a fucking course, lead all the way to that bore hole. We got out of there very fast after that, but as we were packing that drone shit started again from that hole, and it was loud. It was guttural by this point, whatever the shit was making it was down there and close to. German guy went pretty nuts after that. Just hopped in, immediately started going, equipment that was still out for methane measurements just left. Didn't stop driving for the next 14 hours. I pretty much ditched my job soon after, I had no desire to be left like that again in the middle of places like that. German guy, never heard from again. He never talked, about it to me anyway. Nice story. Thanks for posting. Thanks, I suppose. I guess distance from that event makes it sound pretty prosaic. Spooky noises how woo slime, oh During that night though I was convinced I was going to die. You know how you can just know when someone or something like an animal is nice, curious, or is just out to fuck you up? I knew instinctively that whatever wanted in didn't want to crack open a beer and ask us about geology if you get my drift. Anyway, I spent a long time after I had calmed down about it, which took a few months, in fact, to think of a rational reason for this. Every time though, I kept butting up against the inexplainable. Sure, drone could be cave noises, but the warm slime stuff. The guttural noise. Around 2012 I got a lot into reading about frozen mammoths and the worry about viruses from the taiga that they were expecting because of climate change. And at that point I went full slash x slash and said fuck it, frozen monster. forest ranger for a large amount of densely wooded forest just north of the U.S. border. 1,200 just signed on to shift. Get a call on the radio for a 10 to 49, missing person, in my area, last seen wearing a sweatshirt, hiking shorts, and a red backpack. Missing for two days now, and was just reported. Mount up, fuel up, and head out into the area he was last known to be in. Cruising for about an hour and a half, 
decided would be a good idea to start out on foot, as he won't be on any service roads. Notify dispatch to send an additional unit. Wait for a half hour until backup arrives, he's a good guy I enjoy working with. We head up onto a trail that's known for people getting lost, as halfway up it splits and goes further into the woods instead of curving around and heading back out towards the service area. Hiking for an hour, calling out the person's name, keeping an eye out for clues, etc. L wind around a bend and find the remnants of a campsite. Shout out for my partner and the missing gentleman. Partner doesn't come around the corner. Undotchif. Go back around the corner. Partner isn't there. Come up on the radio. Anon. Anon. Come in. Officer Anon. Are you code 4? Nothing. Well fuck. Inspect the campsite. It's fairly recent. About a week. But no new footprints or indents in the mud surrounding the fire pit. Except animals. Decide to wait for partner. He may have gotten lost. Try the radio again, Officer Anon, this is Anon, come in. Are you code 4? Looking around in the trees, listening for any sounds out of the ordinary. Wait for 45 minutes for partner, while walking in a little circle around the campsite. Partner doesn't show up, now I'm a little worried. Go back around the bend in the trail, past the little rock outcropping. Head back the way we came and am looking for any sign of him. As I come up onto a hill, I hear footsteps up ahead of me, boots on the rocky path. Come up on the radio again, Officer Anon, are you code 4? Still nothing on the radio. Dart up ahead to get a good look at whoever is on the trail. Spot a red backpack on the gun. He seems to be walking a little funny, no swing of his arms. Walking almost like a robot. Excuse me, sir. What's your name? I'm 20 feet behind him by this point. Sir. He's still walking like a robot. Hey. He stops, and turns around lighting fast. Are you Herbson McDerbson? He just stares at me. Are you Herbson McDerb, sir? He still doesn't speak, but nods his head. We've been looking for you, let's head back to the trailhead. After about 40 minutes we reach the trailhead, and my slash my partner's vehicles are still there. Now, I'm going to put you in the back of my truck, you're not under arrest, just so you can relax and catch your breath. Try the radio again and on. Are you out there? Anon. The radio crackles to life. This is Officer Anon. Yeah, I'm okay. Found the missing person. He's got a broken leg after falling off a small cliff. I've patched him up and we're on our way back to the trailhead. Sorry for not responding, as out of range. Got separated at one of the trail forks. Uh. What dot Abby? Anon, I've got the missing hiker, he's in the back of my truck right now. Silence for two minutes. Anon, lock your truck and grab the 12 gauge from my jeep. What? Just do it, and don't let it out of your sight.
Okay.Avi. Unlock his Jeep, grab the 12 gauge and inspect it to see if there's a round in the chamber. Calmly walk over to my truck and peek in the window. Nobody in my truck, and the cage was bent to a severe angle, with my driver's side door open. Oh shit.Jif. Swing around the other side of my truck, and peer into the cab. Nothing. Close the door, and climb into the bed, sitting on the roof for the hour and a half of pants shitting terror until my partner got back with the injured hiker. He looks at me. You let it get away. What do you mean by it not? I'll tell you later. Never did tell me after we got back to the station. Don't know if it's a skinwalker, changeling, or what. But it was definitely no dot worthy. I'm back. Talked to my partner today as we were both on the same service road and assigned to the same area. I asked him about that odd incident a month ago. Pulled up next to his jeep as he's filling out paperwork. Hey Anand. How's the shift so far? Eh, a couple idiot kids decided to drink out here, some people having sex. Nothing too serious. So, about that incident we had a month ago. I've been trying to figure it out, and it just keeps confusing me. You never exactly told me what it was. Or why you had me lock my truck and grab a shotgun. He clicks his pen, putting it back in his pocket and closes his citation book. Well, it's not something that you need to know about. It would be in your best interests to keep your nose clean of it from now on. Come on, don't scare me with that G-man, secret agent, bullshit. Just explain what you thought it was. He looks at me from just below the brim of his ball cap. It's something that's lived here long before I ever took this job. I used to live in this area and at night I would always hear my neighbor's voices calling my name, or the family dog barking when the dog was on my bed. Now I'm interested. Dispatch interrupts us with a call about kids shooting animals. Then another call about someone breaking their leg, then patrolling campgrounds and hiking trails, so that's all I got from him today as we weren't near each other for much of the day but I'll keep pestering him slash x slash. Also, no, I'm not a forest ranger. I'm Smokey the bear that just went north for the summer to ensure Canadians don't light forest fires when putting out their joints. things happened to me out on X1 recently was up in Shoalwater. To the Yanks that have been in the training area, they'll remember the urban facility. It's a little town over about half a square kilometer made out of Konix and modified shipping containers. 
complete with doors, functioning windows, a realistic marketplace and even a complex sewer system accessed from various buildings and streets around the facility. Water came up to your knees, full of cane toads, snakes, and even a few eels. Green text in effect. 2011 Talisman Saver. Enemy party, playing an enemy SF call sign, chest rick over bomber jacket with baseball cap accessories and all that jazz. Bloopers situation has detected elevated radiation levels coming from sewer. Bloopers mission is to conduct cordon and search of UOTF by night in order to locate possible radiological threat. Night falls. Have a pretty good working relationship with Platoon Sarge. He walks up, tasks me with patrolling the sewer. Wants me to cap as many cunts as possible down there and then die in place. It hot we were mates you dog cunt.exe. Open up trap door, climb down ladder, water just below junk at this stage. Pitch black, no NVG. Sounds of lapping water, toads doing their thing croaking and shit. Wait on rifle up, using surefire on F88 as a handheld torch. Have a rough idea where I'm going. Reach about the middle of the sewer complex, big room shaped like a spider's web, connecting tunnels branching off in all directions. Plan was to duck down another tunnel when they start wading through and conduct a fighting withdrawal for a bit before dying. Lean against a wall, switch off light and close eyes for a bit, listening to the water lapping about. Decide to wait for sound of choppers, they usually chopper insert when raiding the facility. An hour or so passes. Gradually, the noise from toads starts to die off. Water still lapping about though. Movement around my legs. Flick on light. Metric fucking shit ton of cane toads swimming every which way, trying to climb on me. Raise rifle a bit, look ahead. More toads literally climbing and swimming over each other to get away from one particular tunnel. What the fuck? Shine light down tunnel. Light disappears into darkness. More what the fuck? Start to hear soft, ragged breathing from the tunnel. Shut off light, close eyes, and open mouth to try and hear better. Ragged breathing continues, definitely not coming from me. Open eyes, switch light back on. Breathing turns into hoarse laughter, like a patient with terminal lung cancer. Laughter increases in volume and ferocity. Hear sloshing, as if something is moving down the tunnel. Call out our army's warning we use when breaching with friendlies nearby. Our lads and those that have worked with us will know it. It echoes down the tunnel. Sloshing stops. Silence. Toad still milling around my knees. Suddenly hear the voice of my mate repeating the warning back up the tunnel. Exhale a pent-up lungful of air. About to answer back and give him a bit of shit when another voice from a different bloke in the platoon repeats the warning. Then another bloke, same warning. Then a different bloke. Then more, all different people, some I don't recognize. Voices get louder. Start overlapping each other, as if they're singing in an out-of-time choir. 
you start to get a bit worried now. Voices abruptly stop, as if someone cut the cord. Silence again. No movement around my feet now. Quickly shine light down. No toads. Bring rifle up, shine light down tunnel again. Shape in the light. Sickly wet form stooped down in the tunnel, body is a writhing mass of tendrils with a set of round yellow eyes the kept chipped place like a chameleon. Freeze for only a millisecond, blink, not believing this shit. It screams in Sarge's voice. Die in place. I bellow in fright, off safe and dump a mag of blanks into nothing but air. About turn and bail down the tunnel I came from. Rapid sloshing water behind me. It's fucking chasing me. Panicking, grunting, screaming, falling over trying to wade through the fucking water and all the fucked out cane toads. Die in place. Reach the ladder gasping, quickly slink at and start yelling out to anyone whilst climbing up. The cunt grabs my boots and pulls me down. Slam my head into one of the horizontal rungs. Go under the water. Can't see shit, massive weight pressing down on me, both legs and an arm pinned. Feel repetitive blows around my midsection, like something is trying to punch through the rig. Muffled yells from above the surface. Getting gripped around throat, can't breathe. Grab clasp knife from pocket with free hand. Start desperately slashing and stabbing at anything I can. Thrust it into something and can't get it loose. Start to black out, lose grip on my knife. Light from above though the water, think it's heaven. Weight relinquishes and inverts my knees as it bails off me down the tunnel. Surface gasping, suck in as much air as I can. Hear panicked voices and mates yelling down. Sound of rapid moving boots on the ladder. Look up to see my mate grabbing the shoulder of my chest rig, trying to pull me towards the ladder. Grab the fucking ladder, cunt. Grab on, climb up as fast as I can behind him. Burst through the trap door, gag a bit, vomit, someone unslings my gad, sits me down. Chaos going on, headlamps and torches everywhere, bit of yelling, someone tells someone to fetch the medic. Blood pissing from forehead. Soaked through. Clothes and chest rig shredded. Gasping for air. Looking like a fucking abortion. Did you cunts fucking? Mates chime in. We heard your voice bro, heard you yelling. When we came near the drain we heard Sarge tell us to stand down and go to bed. Came from the sewer man. Yeah, we opened it up, shone our lights down and saw a shape move in the water, next minute you surfaced. What the fuck bro? I take in a few lungfuls of air. Something down there mad. Blank stares. Fucking bunyip, brother. They snicker, call me a shit cunt, pick me up dust me off and we walk back to our conixes. Walk around for a bit, some people still up and milling around, decide to try to find out what happened. Apparently the bluffer attack was called off during the night due to OHNS situation in sewer. Nobody knew I was down there. Try to find Sarge, 
to ask him WTF. Politely ask platoon commander where he is. Sarge was tasked at lunchtime with a Jackie run back at Rocky. He's due to return the following morning. Rack out with an ass load of questions and bad feelings. Wake up a few hours later. My clasp knife has been placed right in front of my face on my stretcher. Few drops of that stagnant sewer water on the blade. Fuck the sewer at Raspberry Creek. <laughs>